0: Moralia Python Radio, with your hosts, Eric Burk and Owen McIntyre.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. Tonight, we are going to be talking with Dr. Warren Booth about inbreeding and parthogenesis, uh, particularly in pythons and boas. Um, uh, For some people, they probably already know... uh, Dr. Warren Bruth from his work with Parthogenesis with Boas. I think he's been on reptile radio. He's probably been on maybe Corralis radio. And I think he's also been on, um, Vin Russo's podcast talking about that. But, uh, so it came about, (laughs) he has not been here. Um, you know, I, I continue to always be humbled in this, uh, this endeavor that we do. Um, where uh, we we were just bullshitting last week and talking about yeah. the granite carpets, and um, he reached out to us and was saying about how, you know, uh, he enjoyed the show, and, you know, he heard us talking about, uh, you, you know, uh, granite carpets having issues because they're being inbred, and, uh, you know, he, he, he went into uh, quite lengthy very detailed email Mm -hmm. uh which was which was pretty awesome about uh his findings on that and uh i said to him wow i needed a guest for tonight and man that would be awesome if you would come on and talk to us and uh hey man it worked out so Mm -hmm. uh he'll be calling in in a couple minutes and uh we'll get that going um what's going on with you man (laughs) well in
2: like the past since we last spoke, all of a sudden I went from like totally losing my mind about ready to like tweak out to I have one and a half clutches on the ground. You have what? One and a half clutches on the ground. I say a half because the other one is a split with Jason Balin. So but it counts. So I have the jungle clutch, which was the clutch from last year, <clears throat> and then uh Jason Bed. Granite IJ, too, I J again, so I got one and a half clutches on the ground. So I feel so much better about the breeding season. And uh, can we can we can talk about this though? I can actually have babies this year and not panic too much. <laughs> so uh,
1: that's how how many clutches? I'm sorry, you broke up.
2: One and a half. Is my mic not working? Because I'm getting some static. So, yeah,
1: a little bit. Yeah, okay, so you I'm got so one weird. and a half. Yeah. I'm still at nine, eight, eight,
2: eight, nine, 12. I don't know. Yeah. You keep, you keep cracking them in. So, uh, but it's, it's just a weird season and, you know, uh, I, I'm hoping to get some more babies and some more stuff going, but you know, I'm excited for what's going on and, uh, a quick thing of thank you to everybody who sent me a message of anyone that you've ever heard of in Pennsylvania that had black pine snakes. I got like 10 messages from people and uh, I've contacted everybody who you've suggested and I'm probably on everybody's list. So in October I might be like get like 12 black pine snakes at this point, but whatever, I'm happy. So uh <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I, I I promise I'll think of something else that I want you guys to find for me and I'll send you guys out to go find it. So, uh, um, yeah, I don't know, Eric, are you looking for something? We can send them out for something.
1: <laughs> so, well, I need a female Sri Lankan Python. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you yeah. Did that. Yeah. It did happen. Yeah. Uh, dude, it's so cool. um, I am super excited about working with that species. Uh, You know, I don't know, man. It makes me uh, um, always uh, just rethink what I'm doing. And like, I always worry about like um, what we are leaving for the next, uh, you know, generation uh as far as herpers go and I, you know i talked a little bit about this on my youtube video that i did but just you know I, I i i've always been into the morphs and i really dig the morphs they're awesome and everything and i don't know i see myself moving away from that type of thing i don't know it's kind of weird how it happens but <laughs> i mean well, I, I guess because those projects are coming to like i i've i've raised them I've worked them I bred them and maybe now it's time to focus on something different you know
2: well I mean that's that that's one project and that's one thing I mean uh when you were talking about you and Matt were talking about this year Lankan all week and I'm like oh it's a it's a fancy looking Burmese python whoopty freaking do and then you mm-hmm. sent pictures and I'm like oh dear god that thing's kind of badass so like that that happens a lot and The fact that, you know, we the problem, I think, when it comes to the reptile community is people get into their groove and then they don't progress forward. You know, I can breed carpet python. Cool. So I'm just going to keep breeding carpet python until I die. All right. Well, okay. But maybe instead of having everything of a certain type, you get a pair of something that might be a little bit off the cuff a little bit difficult to find or a little bit difficult to breed and you breed that and then cool so you progress you know, move move the hobby forward so <laughs> dude i don't even want to i don't even want to think about the last time i even saw a Lankan for sale let alone you know in a person or on a collection so for you to have the one with the plans of potentially pairing it up and actually having Lankans is actually really really cool because it keeps that in the hobby for the people who might want it you know there are numerous people listening that probably don't give a damn but there might be a few people that are real happy about it that they know where where to get it when eventually it happens and that you are the kind of person that has it so
1: yeah i mean oh i mean i guess let me let me clarify what I was saying a minute ago. It's like, um, you know, with all these different coastal carpet projects and Erie and or West Poplin or whatever, (laughs) 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 I knew it would happen. (laughs) I did. I did. I did. You know? Um, and, uh, I just, you know, it's like you're selectively breeding these things and like, you know, what something, something's got to give because eventually you run out of space and room and time and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So it's like, uh, you know, and I've talked about this before, but um, I don't know, as I'm getting these different species and I'm working with them and I'm seeing the differences between them and I don't know, it's 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 pretty exciting. I guess the exciting part is not, you know, being comfortable. I think I can breed carpets. I think that's pretty yes. much a, that's, that's pretty much a you're, done you're, deal. You're eight <laughs> clutches deep, dude. You got it. You know, yeah. that's, 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 that that so, that happened. So I think for me more so than, uh, at least at this point in my life, you know, uh, you know, I've talked about it before. It's always been a dream of mine and, you know, um, to, uh, to work with as many species as pythons as I can. I think of guys like Tom Keogan, Ryan Young, you know, guys like that, that, they just have their, you know, they just have a different, uh, I don't know, a different outlook on things. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but um, mm. I just always looked up to those type of guys like, wow, you know, wow. that, You know, you see guys that are really, you know, laser focused in their collection. And that's awesome, too, you know, and, and I've always been torn between which way to go, you know, because I see the, the benefits of being laser focused and then I see the benefits of having a variety and, you know, I'm like, yeah, but it's always been, this has been my dream. Why am I trying to live somebody else's dream? You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I, I, I just focus on what I want to do and that's kind of what I want to do. And the more and more that, uh, that I'm doing this, the more and more I'm thinking about, Oh, you know, I'm crossing these, these things. And like, it's solidified in my head that I will never work with brettel Jags and inland Jags and all that kind of stuff. Like there's no way I will (laughs) ever cross that stuff. I will Nick mutton the shit out of those things, man. That is not
2: happening.
1: (laughs) Uh, Eric, what are you doing? I'm buying a blackhead just for this. It's like, Oh dear God. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, um, I just wanted to mention one thing uh before we uh before we get on, uh before we get uh, Dr Dr. Booth on. But um uh the auction for the Southwest Carpet Fest is now live. If You want to donate, you can contact Riley uh and uh via Facebook. Yeah, through Facebook uh and um any art vouchers, animals are acceptable. Um but no live animals at the actual uh event um if you're attending the event uh feel free to bring the auction items Um, otherwise arrangements will need to be made uh, between the winner of specific auction items either at the event or uh, through personal message and confirmation there will be specific paypal account for settling the final payments Uh, final payments for the winning auction must be made within 24 hours. Uh, they're going to open the auction three days before April 28th on Wednesday, the 25th, um, Mm -hmm. on the Southwest carpet fest, Facebook page at 5. PM, uh, on Saturday, the 28th, they'll close it. Uh, they'll close the online bidding and those in attendance will have the final chance to bid. Um, this <sighs> will not be an overtime auction. The final, uh, accepted online bids need to be placed before the clock hits 5. P.M. Anyone is open to bid on items, uh, in the Southwest carpet fest page on specific auction posts with each individual item. Um, do, do, uh, and so everybody knows all of the, uh, proceeds will go to us uh, so that uh, we can, they can continue to support uh, the reptile community. Um, If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to anyone involved in coordinating the event. Uh, Brandon Wheeler, Terrell. uh, I keep hearing the message me, (laughs) April, uh, (laughs) Tony or Riley. Uh, Any of those guys, uh, will will pretty much be able to help you. So, uh, check it out. Um, and their carpet fest is Saturday, the 28th, April 28th. So uh, it's pretty, cool. it's funny. And
2: I, and, and I just like sighed there because I started getting through my head that, you know, we're next. And it's like, Oh, uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, that, Oh no. <laughs> so, and we met, we promised last year that we were going to do, uh, the auction live on Facebook so that just got into my head, and I just got I know, out. <laughs>
0: yeah, out. <sighs> that's the stuff.
2: Right. Let's stop worrying <laughs> we'll... about
1: that, and let's start talking yeah, okay. about well, that, some uh, that, inbreeding that's, and
2: some parthogenesis. That's future, that future yeah. Owen and Eric's problem, and forget those guys. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. fine. Hey,
1: <laughs> hey uh, are you there? Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Booth. How you doing? Nice to I'm talk good. to good. you? How are you? hi how are you great good great
3: Excellent. oh
1: and why don't you hit them with oh why don't you hit them with uh some opening questions and then we'll go from there just so we sure can. yeah
2: sure uh well dr booth thanks for coming on with us and uh i know you kind of specified in that um uh email you sent to me and eric but why don't you tell everybody listening uh how you got your start in reptiles and what kind of collection you're working with currently yeah, sure. Before we start, just
3: call me Warren, all right? That's, uh, all Perfect. For I like me. it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's um, this could be really long if you want the uh, kind of the unabridged version of how I've, I've gotten into reptiles, because I've been keeping them for about, I think, for about 23 years um, consistently. And over that time, the numbers have consistently increased, um, which is kind of scary to the point where I no longer count how many I've got. Um, it's a it's over a hundred, but it's below one hundred and fifty, and I'm just kind of consistent with not counting that number. Yeah, no, 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 uh, never we count. We don't
2: count either. Never count. Never count. <laughs> never count. That is that is a rookie mistake. Yeah, no, one ever counts.
3: Yeah, babies, babies arrive and it increases. It's terrible. Yeah. So how, <laughs> it, worked, how it started was um, back in uh, I was about, I was about seventeen. So. Uh, what was that, like 1995, somewhere around then? I, um, I was working for my dad. and We were working in a house one one summer's uh, afternoon. And beside a fireplace, there was a like a three-foot vivarium. And in that vivarium was a, a gardener snake just going around, doing its thing, pretty active. They had these pretty fine meshed branches. And, and I was just enthralled by this animal, just amazed by it. And I, uh, I went home to my mom and I was like, you know, it's coming up to my birthday. Could I get a snake? Could I get a reptile? And I don't know what happened, but she turned around and she said, "Sure, yeah, go ahead." Oh <laughs> and, my God! <laughs> um, I know that was that was the first mistake. If she had have said no, yeah. it would have been a totally different life path that I would be on. Um, but um, what I ended up getting was uh, a leopard gecko, and mm-hmm. a couple of months later, I got another leopard gecko. At that point, we had two morphs, right? You had in the UK and in Northern Ireland, you had the wild type and you had high yellow. And the high yellow just happened to be slightly brighter than the than the wild type, but this was fascinating at the time, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, not long after that, I got a Western Hognose snake, and and that really started the passion for snakes because this thing was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, within a short period of time, some king snakes and then ball pythons, and then I started reading these um, various reptiles magazines and and the uh, the TFH series books. There was one called Boas and Pythons, I think, that had a a Timor Python on the front cover. Oh. And on and on the inside of that front cover was a picture of a... They called it a garden tree boa. You know, what we refer to as Amazon tree boas now. And I was just amazed at this. And uh, a friend of mine who also kept reptiles was was going over to the UK, going over to London to meet up with a guy to, to pick up some emerald tree boas. And he said, look, he's got some Amazons. Do you want me to get you some? And he ended up, ended up coming back with 2.1 Amazons. And that was kind of the the tipping point. That's whenever... Um, everything kind of went crazy, and I started acquiring Amazon tree boas um, in crazy ways. You know, at that point we didn't, we couldn't use FedEx. I don't know what it's like now because I've been away from the UK for about 12 years, but we couldn't FedEx or the equivalent animals from the UK to Northern Ireland. Um, so what I had to do was get an overnight ferry from Belfast to Scotland, and then get a bus from Scotland to, to London, get a train oh from God. London to wherever, <laughs> meet a guy in a house. Buy the snakes, get back on it, and do the exact round trip all the way back. So you're looking at a 24 to 30 hour trip to get your animals, and
1: and I would do this
3: pretty frequently. Yeah, you know, there's, there's no way I'd be doing that today, trust me. No. Um, and I did that, and I acquired all of these these uh, Amazon tree boas, and started breeding them, and was just amazed at how one, how easy they were to keep, and how easy they were to breed. Um, the uh, the problem was how hard they were to sell. It didn't mm. matter whether it was a high red or high yellow or high orange. People didn't really want to buy them because they were bitey animals, and you had <laughs> relatively selective kind of care requirements. But it didn't stop me. And then I got into emerald tree boas, and then I acquired some Sonoran desert boas. And um, those Sonoran desert boas came in from Germany, and it turned out in the first clutch that they produced, the first litter sorry that they produced, there were um, two anarthristic babies. Oh gee. And yeah, so pure Sonoran desert um and then I started producing more of those that turned out to be genetic and I started trading with different people and acquiring albinos and hypos, which at the time were were pretty expensive, you know, they were the equivalent of about fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred dollars for that animal at that time. So, mm-hmm. you know, relatively expensive for what it was. And then um, that kinda just continued um until I was doing my uh my PhD and uh the amount of time I was spending in the lab and in the field was taken away from from my time with the animals, so I ended up selling all of my Corallus group, mm-hmm. which was pretty extensive uh, to a guy in England, and that killed me because these things were amazing. And um, But I kept my Boas and a few other bits and pieces, and then once I finished my PhD, I got a position at North Carolina State um, University in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I uh, I exported 28 Boas from... From from oh Northern god. Ireland to uh, to the US, which is a nightmare. Doing this in December, which is what you don't want to do.
2: No, I know and, that. I, I moved <laughs> in December. That was bad. But yeah. how was that them into, process? Shipping them
3: from Dublin into Philadelphia,
2: oh. and then getting <laughs> a
3: phone call to say that they were they had not arrived.
2: Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, and
3: uh, and it was kind of crazy. It, uh, so I'm sitting in Belfast, think, you know, for 12 hours. They couldn't find these this box. Um, and then my friends kept driving back and forward um, to pick them up for me. A guy uh, and his wife called John and Jane Camp. They used to keep a lot of Amazon tree boas. And um, they finally found the box. It turned out a guy took it took it off the plane, and put it in his office that was warm and forgot about huh. it. So the animals were fine. So everything, you know, the the panic was over. And then I moved over to the U. S. picked those animals up and and started breeding those again and 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 building up the animals that i've got now you know so i basically keep um um it used to be a, about a hundred and something boas it's down to about 40 um mm-hmm. pretty much all central americans so costa rican t-positives which are just amazing um and then uh, various sonoran desert boas some nicaraguan morphs and then horrendously i got back into ball pythons my biggest regret in life
2: um so don't don't mock me for that. Um, I, I I never mock. I just quietly <laughs> and ponder. But, and, you you know, know, that's, nah, will, nothing wrong with I, that. Come on.
3: I will um, say I will say this. They're fun to breed.
2: They're yeah. easy to keep. Um yeah.
3: and if anything, they've done more for this hobby than many of the other um, animals that are out right there and, and they've taught even people that don't even have a high school biology kind of uh, course under their belt, they understand Mendelian genetics
0: to the point where they can work
3: out multiple gene crosses in their head. And that's something that at a university I see first and second year students that can't get some of the stuff around their head. And I'm seeing these people with literally no education in their head working out ratios and so on. So, you know, while Mm -hmm. I I put down ball pythons and while I've got 70 of them or thereabouts, um, I see the benefit of what they've done. Uh, and then and after that, I've got um, a variety of different Corallus tree boas, some uh, uh, Corallus um emerald tree boas, and amazon tree boas, and, uh, and a red foot tortoise, and that's about it. But, you know, I've, I've been keeping them for 23 years. I breed, um, I probably produce, you know, two, two to five litters of boas a year, the same kind of clutches for ball pythons, and then, um, and then it kind of varies for the tree boas here and there, you know, so... Um, so a little bit more, I still consider it a hobby, but it's not, it's not a business. Right. It's definitely a hobby, you know?
1: Right.
2: Yeah. That's
1: cool. awesome though. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess, uh, I don't know, do you want, maybe let's start with the whole concept of inbreeding because I, it was something that you said in your email that rang true uh, to me is when you're buying snakes, you buy them as pairs. Um, yeah. is that good or is that bad or, <laughs> you no, know,
3: it's a really difficult thing to, it's a really difficult question to truly address because we have so few studies of the genetics of many species that we keep, right? And, uh, if you thought about it, you know, you're not going to breed with your sibling because of the risk of, well, there's lots of different things, but one of the risks is in breeding depression, right? right. Um, you know, if you look at Charles Darwin, the person that really highlighted natural selection, even he he was married to his cousin, and several of their children died, and, and it's been worked out that um, that's due to inbreeding depression. So Holy it's pretty hell. significant, right? You know. Um, mm-hmm. But what we've seen with with reptiles, look look at, look at leopard geckos. You know, how many realistically, how many wild leopard geckos are brought in each year to supplement um, breeding projects? Probably very few, and yet they continue to thrive. Yeah, they throw out all these weird color morphs as a result of it. Um, but they, they seem to continue to thrive. Some things do affect them. You see a reduction in um, in health in terms of their ability to resist pathogens. Um, but they seem to do okay. And then you see other animals that, that really get hit by it. And, you know, we see um, a variety of different boas and pythons that some of them seem to do well. They do fine with inbreeding. Other ones end up coming out kinked um they have um, you know spinal deformities jaw deformities and so on and the viability of the offspring can be can be reduced so you know while i and, and i'm a I'm a I'm a, a culprit of this as well you know i have sold pairs of snakes for years um you know i think if you if you can outbreed then you should outbreed um and i mentioned to you guys a couple of days ago that one of the problems with this is that our hobby is so driven by color morphs mm mm-hmm. Um, you know the first thing you want to do once you spend several thousand dollars on a on a new morph is to to breed it to something that 's already got those genes in it or else to breed it to something and then back back cross it to its offspring and therefore you're you're you 're now reducing genetic diversity in those offspring you 're making them more homozygous across their genome, and with that, when you lose this genetic diversity, you lose um, the ability, in many cases, to resist, um, you know, things like pathogens to to um, have that diversity to be able to survive in, in variable uh, conditions. And also you increase this homozygosity that can be associated with um, morphological variation, morphological deformities and so on, and that can be scale deformities or jaw deformities or whatever, and we see that. You know, you see these little animals with the tips of their tails kinked and so on, and, I, and, and undoubtedly a lot of that is, is due to... Is due to inbreeding, but the problem, as I say, is that we don't have a lot of data to actually back that up. Now, what we've got now is some of the some of the work that we're doing, as a as a byproduct of working on parthenogenesis, is that we've now got these whole genome scans essentially, and we find that um, captive animals that we're looking at have got really high levels of homozygosity before even parthenogenesis. So. You know, I'm looking at a at a figure in front of me for boa constrictors, and this relates to um, to a paper that I published in 2011 uh, about parthenogenesis and boa constrictors. And looking at the sexually produced mother, looking at her offspring that were parthenogenetic, and then and then we then raised one up and bred that to a sexual male and produced sexually produced offspring. That original grandmother, that that founder of that. Had fifty percent of her genome was homozygous. Oh, wow. that's ridiculous. We expect oh, in, yeah. in natural populations, you're looking at you know much lower levels of homozygosity. You know, in the in the single digits, maybe a little bit above that. But that's a huge, a huge um, level of uh, of homozygosity. Now, now compare that to another fi- figure that I'm looking at, which is relating to parthenogenesis in king cobras, and the king mm-hmm. cobra is obviously not a highly captive-bred animal. The mother that produced these parthenogens, her level of homozygosity in her genome is about 3%. So a massive difference between a wild-collected or at least early-stage captive animal compared to those animals that have been in captivity for a long period of time. Yeah. So, um, you know, with that, we often see these litters producing these deformed offspring that we just cull, and we think nothing of it, but we really do, we should think about what's the driver of that. Is it was it you know a uh, an issue with incubation or with gestation or or could it have been a, a, an inbreeding, in, inbreeding depression issue? Hmm.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so you you actually uh, you know were one of the w- ones that worked or you were the one that worked with the granite right with with Nick? I haven't. Um, oh, okay. Nick,
3: okay. So, so Nick Nick and I are working on a couple of different projects. We're working on a project relating to okay. twinning. In, okay. Uh, yes. Primarily in Indo-Australian uh, pythons, and we're extending it to, to African pythons if we can get the samples. There's, we're slowly accumulating those, uh, but Nick's mm-hmm. got a huge. He sent me a huge collection of um, of, of carpet pythons for twins and triplets, mm-hmm. or shed skins mm-hmm. at least. Um, but we have talked about um, granite before, and and I and listening to you guys talk about it in the past, and and speaking to Nick about it. It seems to be a case of, of inbreeding depression. You know, it looks to be a, a you know, typical, you know, you, you produce a morph and then you inbreed the hell out of it to fix that trait. And people, unfortunately, mm-hmm. don't then outbreed it because um, if it's a recessive trait or an incomplete dominant that has a very subtle phenotype, then that's not really what they want to produce. You know, and, right, right. And it seems that people outbreeding like granites, now. I could be wrong because I, I don't keep carpet pythons, but it seems that people that are outbreeding um, these granites seem to be getting healthier lines. And Nick has mentioned that he has healthy granite carpets. Yeah, I have
1: uh, I have one from him, that, and I think I mentioned it last week, but I have one that he produced that was uh, one of the first generations that he did some outcrossing with. And I was nervous about the female because typically the females, you know, it's just, it's just a bad, bad, bad scene when they go to lay eggs and right. uh, she was fine. Um, she's a little, a little, you can tell that she's, she's a little, there's something just weird about her, like, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, almost like a spider ball python or a jaguar. Yeah, it's got that kind of, yeah, like right. That. It's got that kind of neurological mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's you not, know it's it's not as severe as what you would see with a Jack. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned
3: the, um, the gestation and the laying aspect, because I, um, up until recently I had, um, uh, she was about eight years old, uh, a parthenogenetic boa constrictor and I'd raised her up slowly and she, I bred her to a male for a couple of reasons. One is we wanted to determine what sex the offspring were going to be because they should have only been, based on our early assumptions, they should have only been female. But um, we, I bred it to a sexually produced male, and the gestation was weird. She sat at the <clears> cold end of the viv, uh, of the vivarium, um, sitting at, gestating at a temperature, a body temperature of about 81 degrees. And normally, all of my gravid boas, when I hit them with a temp gun, they're like 86. 86.8 degrees Fahrenheit. And once once I see that, I know they're doing well. But this one sat at 81 or 82. And even though she looked right, you know, I just thought she was going to slug out. And then 105, 104 days after her post-ovulation shed, I came in and she was starting to give birth. But it was the most labored birth that I've seen. Instead of this, you know, I see Boas giving birth over a really short period of time. And uh-huh. this was drawn out. So the first couple of babies came out alive in the last... Uh, Four came out dead um and it oh, just wow. it was just it was just not a great birth, and she never really recovered from that in fact, she just died about three weeks ago um but she wow. never recovered from that whole process, and it just makes sense whenever I hear um you know this um these comments about reproductive issues with granite carpets you know with when it comes to egg laying and so on, it seems to mm-hmm. kind of fit into the same kind of story and and it it fits in with inbreeding depression that we all see. Um, issues with fecundity, issues with egg laying or live birth, issues with the viability of offspring.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah. what? How do you? I mean, because so since you work with, you know, you work with boas and stuff. What about like insular boas, or uh, you know, species that are kind of like uh, on an island where they they're not really exposed to, you know, uh. Immigrants I mean, moving in. Yeah,
2: a small genetic pool.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't get
3: you don't get migrants floating across. Whatever it's it's mm-hmm. very limited gene flow. Um, I think that's a really good question. And again, the problem is that we don't have a lot of samples from that. But a, a friend of mine works on the um the uh, the genetics of the boas on the uh, Chaos Coquinas Island, so the Hog Island boas. Mm-hmm. and they were there last year collecting animals and that's going to be a very interesting one once i i haven't seen their data yet but it's going to be very interesting to look at that because you know that's a species sorry that's a, a lineage or a locality that essentially collapsed due to due to harvesting for the for the pet trade uh to the mm-hmm. point where i think the national geographic went went to the to the islands and they couldn't find a single boa but now you can go to those islands, and speaking to some friends that go f- relatively frequently, they'll tell you that you'll get at least four to six boas in about a four-hour period. Um, I think what you what you lose is that diversity that there used to be on the island. There used to be a range of phenotypes from the really, um, you know, the vivid kind of pastel kind of colours through to the cloudy kind of grungy speckled animals. I think they all seem to be more closely matched now, which suggests they they're founded from a a very small gene pool. But mm-hmm. you know, the the issue is that you're not. We're, I don't. I don't believe they're seeing real effects yet um, of that. Um, and it might be just simply the number of generations that have passed since that population started to rebound. Or a, a, an animal that's suffering from inbre- inbreeding depression in the wild is likely to get picked off pretty quickly. So what happens gotcha. is, we also so we got to think about the reverse or the opposite of inbreeding depression. Uh, and, and that's a thing called heterosis, and that's whenever you actually get a benefit from from some from outbreeding. And sometimes you can also get a benefit from inbreeding. All right, so we think about outbreeding being beneficial, but inbreeding can sometimes do the same thing because um, you can get you know these deleterious genes sprinkled through the genome that do bad things, and if they come together in a homozygous form, then it's, then it's bad for the animal. But mm-hmm. the alternative is that if they get purged from the population then you lose those deleterious alleles. And therefore the animals that are there are adapted to that environment and and they seem to thrive. And this is actually something we see in a number of organisms, a number of pest species, things like bed bugs and some cockroach species have really low levels of genetic diversity, really low levels of gene flow, and yet they thrive and, and they become global invaders. Um, so inbreeding might not necessarily always be bad. We, we might see lineages that do great, and, and we're bound to get people that talk to us and say, "Yeah, I've been inbreeding for the last, you know, 30 years and X number of generations, and I've never had a problem." Well, it just might be a case that they have animals that had purged those or did not have those deleterious alleles to start off with.
2: So, the one species that comes to mind in my head, and not just because I'm absolutely obsessed with them, um, but it's the rough scale python. Yeah, because definitely. That's gonna be Even, interesting. I mean, the ones that I have here, I mean, it, it, like we're talking multiple breedings, but all stem by mm-hmm. back to those five animals that were originally collected by the team that went out and got them. So mm-hmm. I've not heard of any issues with them at all. Not no kinks, no anything. And this is got to be a severely limited gene pool. Not only with the captive population but even in the wild because they're only really in a tiny little region so yeah, yeah but
3: but how many generations has it been in captivity I, I think, do not
2: know off the top of my head
3: but I, I would imagine it's probably less than 5 probably if you think about it I mean
2: yeah. cuz uh, I remember
3: whenever they came in originally I remember whenever they, they, they were moved out of Australia and into Europe yeah. and uh and it wasn't that long ago i think it was about 10 or 12 years ago something like that there and cool. um and in the time that people then acquire those and raise them up um you know you're probably only getting a handful of generations before they are to where we are now and i know that speaking to some people i i've i haven't heard of a lot of scale breedings going on uh mm-hmm. i hear them sprinkled here and there so whether there's simple whether they're difficult to breed or whether there's actual reproductive issues I don't know Um, but I think that's definitely something that's going to be an issue but then we look at Angolan pythons they're exactly the same Angolans were finding such a very small gene pool uh, and they seem to be doing fine realistically carpet pythons are the same right if you look at any true locality carpet python it's the same thing and this is this could be why we see high instances of twinning and tripleting and so on in many of these lineages so it'd be it'd be really cool to to be able to 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 um to do genome scans of a lot of these captive lineages to see exactly how diverse they are um, yeah it's just for that it's the cost of doing it right you know it's nobody wants to put up the money for it so
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, oh yeah punch. there's that
3: but there are there are other species that do that are showing inbreeding depression that live on islands so getting back to your other question um there's a species called the antiguan antiguan racer and its population size is ultra small from the from the papers that I'd read from the 90s and, and the early 2000s they were they were looking at like 15 to 20 animals on these islands and whenever they were tracking populations of the uh, of the offspring that were being produced um in each generation they were finding about 20% of them were showing traits that were um, comparable to inbreeding depression. So they had jaw morphological issues, and they had fused scales. Um, hmm. So uh, I'm not aware of any genetic studies that were done on them, but they certainly showed the phenotypic kind of traits that we sometimes associate with,
1: um, with inbreeding depression. Um, are, there, are there certain traits that start to show once you start to see inbreeding depression um, and does it gradually get worse or is it just? Well, I think,
3: I think the the obvious ones that stand out that I've mentioned are um, offspring viability issues. So Mm -hmm. that could be as much, um, you know, bring it right either to the offspring have issues hatching or whenever they're, they're born, they're very weak and they die or they could just fail to develop um during gestation um or incubation, and the eggs just die off
0: mm-hmm. um
3: you see um reproductive issues you see um uh, growth rates can be reduced, so you get these this stunting, and it's kind of funny. I always hear of these people talking about hatching out or producing these dwarf animals, and I'm like, well, it might not be dwarf; it just might be a highly <laughs> inbred animal. it's right. not a new lineage, and it's not necessarily a good thing um generally dwarfism and so on is is, is not always a, a true trait. You know, you look at um, hog island boas have been called dwarfs for years, but they're not dwarfs. It's, they're they're, they're sized, size stunted due to the food on that island. They don't have the food available for seven or eight-foot hog island boas.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: speaking to people that work on them, you know, they've got, they'll have got they find the odd six-foot female, but she'll be as, mm-hmm. as thin as a, as a broom handle, you know, because there's just no food for them, and then they die. Um, so growth rate can be an issue um, and resistance to disease. And, and we see, it. you know, there's some real issues going on. You know, we know about all of these things going on in, in relation to respiratory illness and so on. And a lot of it can be due to captive care and a lot of it can be, be due to viruses that are being spread just due to really poor quarantine. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, you've also got animals that are likely to be in weakened states because of inbreeding depression. Um, okay. And it's just the way it is. But again, it's 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 turning around and being able to being able to assign inbreeding depression as the issue versus captive care versus something versus a a contracted illness, um, and that's the problem, you know.
1: And there's really okay. no
3: way to to really know that unless you do the
1: do the
0: work,
3: right? E- even with genetic studies, you you don't necessarily know that because again, it could be. You can have a highly inbred animal that has purged these mm-hmm. alleles that make it susceptible to these, that highly susceptible to these pathogens. So it's, gotcha. you know, until and, and we're not going to be at any point anywhere near understanding what genes do want in many of these snake species um, for a long, long time. So it's just, it's just a very difficult thing. But I think what we need to think about is, 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 we need to actively. Um, promote outbreeding where we can. Of course, there's some things that we just can't do it with, right? If you get, you know, there's a handful of Duns pythons probably floating around the U.S., and it's kind of weird Mm -hmm. because I remember Duns pythons were 125 pounds in the U.K. about 15 years ago. (laughs) They were this grungy, ugly little animal that nobody wanted, and I I overlooked them on so many different price lists. But the small pool that we've got right now is what we've got. You're not getting any more anytime soon, right? So what are you going to do? Are you going to let it die out, or are you going to try and breed it?
0: You're gonna you know, breed the
3: dungy just, ones. Yeah, that's it. You're you just know. gonna do it, you know, and hope for the best, and and you're gonna select animals that are being produced that just don't die and they seem to thrive, and and the ones that just don't do well, you either cull them or else you don't use them for breeding, and you try mm-hmm. and select animals that are healthy.
1: Um, is there a better way to 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 do that? To like to map it out to when where you only have a limited amount? Like, is there do's and don'ts or best practices of how to manage a project like that? Yeah, you
3: know, there's there's been a a handful of, of um zoo studies that have gone on in relation to captive rearing of animals. And you know, I I haven't seen a lot of papers published on them. Um you know, I'm thinking of like the Round Island Boa. Um I think I said the Round Island Boa was um highly endangered and it's been bred in the in the uh, uh in the UK I think. Um uh, but I don't know the rates of from a very small gene pool, I don't know the rates of of um, deformities and so on with the offspring. I think in our own projects, you know, we we always hold animals back, right? That's my biggest issue, and that's why I freaking ended up with so many damn animals over a short period of time. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to hold back two. I'm going to hold back six. You know, like, what do I need six of these for? You know, but when I'm doing it, you should be selecting not just the really nice looking animals. You should be selecting the ones that are really vigorous. Mm-hmm. You know, the best feeders and stuff like that, um, the the most active animals. And and as long as they carry the trait, then you're kind of fine. You're going to be able to reproduce that down the line. Um, don't just hold back animals that hold the, the carry the exact trait that you want, even though, though it's really weak. Like, look at how many litters or clutches of snakes are born, and it's always the one that's the morph that you really want that comes out really weak or stunted yes. or something wrong. And what yeah, you do, you hold it back and you nurse that thing. Right, and you do your best, you, you sit with it in your hand for six weeks spoon feeding it until oh it actually looks healthy. Yeah. And you, and to get it up to breeding size and then you breed it, in the wild that thing would not have lived. You know? Yeah. And it's it's difficult, you know, whenever it's that animal that you really want, it's difficult to turn around and say, you know, what? maybe this is not the best one for me to use, maybe I should wait another year or two and breed them again and try and get healthier animals. Well, that's hard to do, you know. I, I've, yeah. I've I've held those animals in my hand as well, you know, yep. Yep. and stuff, and and you see it go through its first shed after nine months, and you're like, oh, that's great, this is
2: fantastic. Great, you're force feeding. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, great. Yeah, Thing turns um, two, and you're still sticking rat tails in Right, its mouth, exactly. Like, what you know, am I doing? Yeah, yeah
3: you know, it's funny. I've got I've got an animal that I that was produced in a litter of boas. Um, there was one baby. And eleven slugs, and that one baby, it came out vigorous. It it it's completely patternless along its sides, nope. and it's a really interesting little boa. But that thing is the slowest growing animal I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. It's, it's also the nastiest animal. And if it if it if it didn't have a unique pattern, that thing would have been fucking euthanized many years ago. <laughs> um, up until six years of age, it was still eating adult mice. For a female oh. boa, thankfully it's, oh. it's taken off. No matter how much you feed it, and I'm a real proponent of i feed my animals very rarely my adult boas get fed maybe 10 times a year um, mm-hmm. but the younger ones get fed with more frequency but this thing no matter how much it fed it just did not grow it's taken a little growth spurt now it's probably about four feet now um and i palpated it uh, a couple of weeks ago and felt seven follicles develop developing so i've actually paired it with an animal to see what happens but you know normally that thing is just you you're just gonna just forget about it you know uh-huh. If that had been a normal a normal looking animal, you would have just yeah, if it dies, it dies. There we go. So right. you know? Warren,
2: if you get seven animals out of this boa that look like her, but also are so horrible on feeding, are you gonna be kicking yourself like No, they're twenty five thousand I mean, each. <clears throat> All right, never mind. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, like, uh, no um, what, what,
3: what would I do with them? Um I think as a scientist I would feel very guilty if I tried to do anything real, you know, to try and keep them alive and I would just sit back and think, well, she bred once. Right. She'll likely breed again and if she doesn't that's just the way it is. It's you know right. um I I I find it very difficult now to to um to try and save those real runty, wimpy animals because I yeah. don't think it's good for the I don't think it's good for the hobby in terms of those in terms of what is being produced um and uh i'm just not a fan of that you know it's like it's like cutting python eggs I i can't bring myself to do it because i think you know that's a great that, that's test. a behavior that that you yeah. know whenever these that that's the first thing that shows you this animal can do something you know it can make its way out of a out of a calcium covered shell uh, and if it can't do that then there's some issues you know, look at what we've right. done with dogs. Not not we as a, as the three of us, but look at what mm-hmm. is, what humans have done with dogs. You know, you look at British bulldogs, and they have to be born by cesarean,
1: just right, because, because
3: they've been inbred yeah. to heck. You know, and and do you really want that with a snake? And of course, m- people love cutting their cutting their python eggs. I just I just can't do it. I I think it takes away from one the enjoyment of the hobby and seeing these things hatch. But also, it's showing you the viability of the animal. You know? Right.
0: Hmm.
2: I've never mean, thought about admit, it that way, but yeah. Well, I mean, I'll admit there's a difference between cutting a tiny window and then taking like a chainsaw and like hacking right. around and like you know, oh, yeah, the baby, like, ripping the baby snake out. Yeah, there's there's differences, but, but think you know, about what
3: you're doing. You know, even by cutting, oh, I'm a window. cheating. Think about what I you're doing to that animal. i cheating. Yeah. You're looking at it right, but it's it's also exposing it. It's changing the environment of the, the inside of that egg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it can it can cause issues. Um, it can call it can increase the the movement of the embryo that's developing, and you know you hear all these people saying that you, they don't want it to get caught up in the uh, in the umbilical cord. I, in my opinion, a lot of that is complete BS. It's just impatience, and right. I see all of these videos, and I. I you know, I'm sitting, eating lunch, and I'll, I'll look up some of these videos on YouTube, and, and people literally, like, taking a rusty blunt spoon and hacking away at an egg,
0: uh. and, hand covered in blood, and then
3: pulling the thing out, the snake out with a oh. hand to, to see what it was. And I'm like, you know, if you waited four days, it would be out on the cell. It would be out. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it right. looks like death
3: right now, you know, and you look like some kind of chainsaw killer, you know? So I don't know how good that's that's for the hobby, but I also don't necessarily think it's a good thing for the for the selection of animals you know it's it's reducing that it's taking away from that component but we do it with humans right we you, a baby is born that's unhealthy goes into an incubator and we spend months and months keeping it alive if that was mm-hmm. you know 30 years ago that child probably wouldn't have survived so it, we're guilty of doing it not just with snakes but with every other organism that we put our hands on realistically yeah,
1: yeah. right it's almost like we have uh, this mission to save everything you know mhm. Like,
2: Oh and yeah. that and that I think after time I mean I can tell you for a fact that you know when I first hatched my first clutch of carpets I had one or two babies that wouldn't feed and I force fed them and took care of them and did all that stuff until they were about a year and a half old mm-hmm. and two of them still ended up dying and one flourished but you know now mm-hmm. if you don't eat clearly you weren't meant for to survive yeah. sorry
0: and, you know, it's, and I,
3: it's difficult to watch that, you know. And it is just, just to let me clarify, I'm not supporting the allowing children to die. Just No, no, oh But um, oh God! But I, you know, I I think it's it's difficult to watch that, you know, in terms of right, you know, you've you've spent all this time pairing these animals, raising them yeah. up, pairing them, producing eggs, and then seeing the your the animals just not flourish, and and the first thing you want to do is jump in and force down a mouse tail or a rat tail, and hoping mm-hmm. that that's going to bring it round, and you know, the question is, um, is it not eating because we're not offering it the diet that it would be used to in its ancestral kind of locale, right? You know, right. it was primarily primarily a lizard or an amphibian feeder, and we're trying to get it to eat rodents, right? In that case, I can kind of understand it, right? It's our fault. We should not be breeding them if we can't offer them the right food. Right. But if it's an animal that, that thrives on rodents from day one, then, you know, there's other issues there. And I've seen this with with some snakes that people have brought to me that, that lack the ability to move a tongue. Some of them don't even have a tongue, you know, um, and and they're, they're just wanting animals force-fed and hoping that one day it'll turn around and a tongue will appear out of the glottis. And it's like, I don't think it's going to happen, guys, you know, and with an inability to taste, it's, I don't know, it's not going to be, a, it's not a good lifestyle for this animal. Right. Um, so... Uh, whether that's by inbreeding or whether that's just another trait you know just an incubation issue you know spike in temperatures or just one of those weird things um but um inbreeding certainly does bring forward traits that are um certainly detrimental um and we as keepers often overlook those in favor of the morph or the locality or whatever it is you know Gotcha. And for some animals, we're just not going to see new ones come in. what's the likelihood no. that we're going to see new rough scales coming in you know outbred, no, done
2: yeah. well,
3: and here's the other here's the other question right Here's the other issue yeah just if we if if we turn around and said, right, we're keeping all these rough scales and they're they're horribly inbred, and we can get a new population brought in that are totally out, unrelated to it. What's going to happen when you breed these two together? People think, well, you're introducing all of this genetic diversity, and that's going to be great. Well, not necessarily. You can get outbreeding depression. The, whole, the opposite of inbreeding depression, where the lineages are so genetically distinct or diverse that uh, distinct that whenever they come together and breed, they actually break up these gene complexes that have formed over time, and oh. the offspring can be hideously deformed, and 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 again, you can get the same kind of symptoms. So what we're always looking for is that sweet spot somewhere in between it. You know, the animals that are healthy and viable and doing their stuff, and they're not you know, super diverse and they're not super, uh, de- de- So there, there okay. is a risk, there is a risk going, going both ways.
2: Jesus, <laughs> there's no safe ground, but, um, <laughs> we, we had a question sent to us by, uh, William, uh, Philpick, and he wanted to know, uh, when, uh, his question is about, uh, insular Island boas, um, is that they, can they replicate the limited bloodlines and localities when they only have about one or two original, two or three original founder animals. I mean, is there any way to breed stronger genetics into the animals, depending on what you got through these inbreedings that you're pretty much doing? Or is this all wishful thinking and you you get what you get? Well, think about these
3: islands, right? Many of them are very Mm -hmm. old, and these animals have been on it for a very long period of time, even in very small gene pools. And the smaller the gene pool, the higher the risk of this thing called genetic drift, and that can lead to... High levels of inbreeding, mm-hmm. but these animals have been adapting to these conditions for for a long period of time and and the genes that are present on that are the the genes of the animals that have survived and and can can get through it and You, you think about what 's happening on many of these islands. the boas could be feeding um, for a couple of couple of months a year, just gorging on on migrant passerine birds and then not feeding for the rest of the year and they 've the gene pool that's there, it might be very small, but it is perfectly adapted and suited to that island. The mm-hmm. problem is if we then bring it into captivity and we think, well, you know what would be great? Why don't we breed it with one that's nearby, if it's from an island nearby, just to give it a little bit of additional genes, well, this is where you can you can you can result in that outbreeding depression and result in, in, in animals that are relatively unhealthy as a result. But also what you're doing is, you know, you hear all of this stuff. My animal is a such and such, or a 76 point something such, you know, percentage animal, and they're going to keep breeding it and breeding it and breeding it until they get to 100% something, they're never, ever going to get back to the wild wild genotype. Once you outcross it to something that is not from that locality, the offspring can never produce offspring that are 100% from that locality. Okay. It's just the way it is, you know. It's just the way genes rearrange and so on, and recombination occurs. There will right. always be genes that are not from that locality, from the outcrossed animal, and therefore you've lost that, that that genetic provenance of that, you know, of that that individual. So, you know, my saying is that, my feeling is that while we look at, you know, and I say boas are my real thing, um, Central American boas are, are my real passion, and and I look at all of these little, you know, crawl key and all these different different. Um, um, small population uh, animals that have been brought in from maybe one or two animals originally that seem to be doing well, you know, when it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, don't right, try right. to, don't try to, to, to make it better. If you, if your desire is to try and strengthen the gene pool, when you want to do that is when we get to a point where they're just, everything's dying and yeah. it's like it's like genetic rescue in many species, you know, where you might have to breed it to a closely related species or a different, you know, just to retain that species. From going just to keep it. Right. Yeah. That's whenever you might think about doing it. But then can you really call it a crawl key boa if it's had, you know, blood from a Belize boa bred into it or a Honduran boa bred into it? You can't really call it that anymore.
2: No, it's different. You know, and
3: while it's, while it's heartbreaking to think about it in that sense, you know, you really have to. You can't think about it as being that you know I'm I'm restoring genetic diversity to this island because the genetic diversity that's on that island rafted there very likely thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. and and selection has taken place over thousands of years to get to what there is now, and many of those islands might have you know five six seven animals on it and that's it. Yeah, are right. the ones that are producing offspring every, you know, four or five or six years, small numbers. And a couple of those might survive and they become the next line, you know. But hopefully just, you know, they're, hopefully they're just breeding randomly and, and you might retain some level of diversity. But, you know, and when the issue is that with, with, you know, human-induced climate change and, and temperatures changing so dramatically, you, you increase this additional level of variation that and stochasticity that many of these species just can't adapt to fast enough. And they will go extinct mm-hmm. as a result of that. You
2: know. So with these kind of island boas let's just use them as an example where there's not that many and there's only one or two is there any <laughs> way and and there's they're thriving having such few numbers and not very big genetic diversity is there a way to replicate that in captivity for them I mean is that what we're pretty much doing when we get these boas of one or of or, or like two or four founder animals Yeah, we're, you know,
3: pretty much, you know, and hopefully if you get, you know, four founding animals, you can, you know, you can cross them in in multiple different ways, hopefully produce a, a slightly diverse gene pool, or at least individuals that are not highly homozygous, assuming that the four brought in were not all siblings. Um, right you know and again that's something we don't know especially in some of these small gene pool small population sizes um of these islands it's very difficult to determine but they also the likelihood that we're that we're getting to bring those in nowadays is 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 negligible but looking back at these you know these island boas and so on um i think you know they they have been found by very very small gene pools and they Mm -hmm. and i think if breeders are breeding them you know and they see a deformed animal they just put it down to being a deformed animal and they euthanize it and right. they sell the ones that are healthy and up you know that might be the case and, but also they might the, these animals might still be producing very viable offspring because they've only been in captivity for a short number of generations um you know you look at it would be interesting to look at some of these lines that have been kept in captivity for a long period of time you know some of the some of the Colombian boas and so on some of the animals the best ones are, are morphs because people try to grow them up as fast as possible and, and breed them and breed them back to their siblings and so on they're the ones that you really want to look at i think mm-hmm. with something like a like an a, an island boa there's less design, there's no traits there there's no morphs right so you're just breeding animals to healthy animals you're not just you're not raising up that sickly little animal to hopefully pass on the genes to the next generation Mm-hmm. It dies, it dies, you know? So we might be looking at
2: it in a slightly different way.
0: Okay.
2: So, I mean, with these with these very few animals, I mean, I guess on the island, is it necessarily the same animals breeding with each other every year? Is that kind of where we might be falling into a little bit of a pitfall here? Is we're kind of just recycling... The same pair, or do you think that wouldn't really matter too much with these island guys?
3: Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's it's totally dependent on the population size. But you know, many reptiles, many snakes will will be polyandrous or promiscuous. They'll breed with any male it's, that they're that they're put with. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Right, I I've, I have put males with multiple females, and they've only bred certain ones, even though they've all been receptive to other males. Um, but I think in in a wild population, we do get a, a decent level of of outbreeding. Uh, where possible, you know we're unlikely to see a, a pair stay together and show any kind of fidelity to each other. Snakes tend right. to look at each other like rocks, right? You know they're they're just another little hot spot that you can sit on or stick something in and then slide away, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Not that you do that with rocks, but um, right. Or you shouldn't. You shouldn't at least. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any real fidelity unless they're really restricted to a small area where they might only have one or two individuals that they can breed with. But even then, you know, they produce offspring and they're likely to then back cross to those and so on. I think I think there's probably enough random breeding on those islands to, to retain the diversity that's there. And I think if they only paired with a small number of individuals, you're constantly reducing the gene pool. So right. us breeding are paired together that are siblings, are producing offspring that are, that are going to have an elevated level of homozygosity. And then breeding those together, you've got an increased level of homozygosity, and you go through this little spiraling depression of of um of losing diversity i don't th- I don't think you'd necessarily see it too much, but you know looking at some of the studies of natural populations, you know as I said, there is evidence of of, of inbreeding depression in these small small populations, but I think the deformed ones die, and that's it and and eventually eventually if the population size is so small that the majority of the offspring that are being produced are deformed they're just going to die out that's it the population on that island will go extinct and only over time might it become reseeded by the next adjacent island and that gotcha. starts a new lineage
1: yeah huh yeah i guess uh yeah, i never thought about it that way um
3: <clears throat> so But but dwarf to, to say one thing dwarfism Um, has arisen numerous times independently in boas on these islands. So it's not as if a dwarf boa seeded an island and from that island um, they spread onto other islands. Uh, Dwarfism, island dwarfism has occurred numerous independent times. And a lot of it's likely to be food um, and resource limiting. That Once you then take them out of that, that, you can certainly make bigger animals just by feeding them more and so on. So that's not necessarily an inbreeding issue. That's just a A restraint of the of the
1: habitat that they're in do you have any thoughts on you know we see it in boas with the dwarfs but we also see it in like retics and berms is that the same thing that's going on there or do you have thoughts on that
3: you know i love dwarf retics. i don't think i'll ever own any but i love them and i think um not knowing um the island locales enough where they're present um i would imagine Mm -hmm. that a lot of it will be food restricted you look at islands and one of the the, the the general traits is that we lose diversity on islands, and when you mm-hmm. lose diversity, you lose your um, sources of food and so on for these other animals and these different trophic levels. Mm-hmm. And I think then that um, you know snakes are great because they've got they've got a pretty low metabolic rate; they can go a long period of time um, without feeding. So therefore, if they get to gorge, you know, for a couple of months a year on migratory birds then so be it. They seem to to, to thrive on those islands as a result, or at least they seem (laughs) to have a persisting population. And they might not breed at three years old or two years old, like some people try and push animals in captivity. It might be, you know, they need to be seven or eight years old before they can breed. But, um, you know, it, it would be interesting to look at those subsequent generations of those animals in captivity, and I'm almost certain that you would find that subsequent generations you're going to find larger animals. Um, if you're feeding them in the way that most people feed, their captive animals.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, if you feed
3: it in the way that they're fed in the wild, when they're, when they're likely to ex- get food, you'll get a very different animal. And, and having caught enough snakes and things like Costa Rica and so on, um, a lot of animals you find in the wild are just really shitty looking. You know, like they're on death's door because <laughs> they're really? feeding so infrequently or they're feeding during right. a very seasonal period. And then they're starving for the rest of it. Um it's only it only seems to be you know, the ones that I find locally, some of the some of the um a lot of things like copperheads seem to seem to thrive. 'Cause they'll feed on different things, you know, they'll feed on cicadas at part of the year and so on. You know, they'll they'll have a pretty wide diet, but on, on some of these um relatively f- uh food um um restricted in terms of the, the range of species that they'll eat um for those species, they could be restricted to a very short period of time where they can feed, and that will obviously stunt their growth.
1: We did just have a question pop in in our chat. It says, so then is yeah. it possible for someone to feed a pure hog island boa up to an eight foot yeah I've seen yeah I've seen eight
3: foot I've seen eight foot hog island boas
2: now, how long do they live? I mean, oh, a very like, short period of time. Thank you. Is that like, yeah, like, you know, I bet you if I, I, bet you if you really let me, I bet you I could get an Amazon tree boa to look like an emerald, but it's going to be dead in well, a year. You
3: right. know, and that's interesting
2: because, um,
3: you know, my out of my first group of of Amazons, um, mm-hmm. one of the ones that I got, I, I got from a guy that had kept it. He was a barber and he kept it in his shop, and I think he <laughs> must have fed the thing god. every three days. Whenever I got it, it ate medium rats. Oh my god and it was huge and uh, it's it's the size of my burger eye, so they eat medium rats and, uh-huh. um, and it was a big ass animal it produced 25 babies at a time Jesus <laughs> you know <laughs> so um, it's interesting because Amazons are kind of the outlier when it comes to tree boas you know we think about tree boas mm-hmm. being these lazy animals that sit on Sit on perches all their life, you know, and and rarely move, and therefore you 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 just need to feed them every several weeks, and and I'm starting to come around where they can, to the fact that they can probably eat more frequently. You know, I'm sitting in my in my office in my lab right now. and behind me. I've got, emerald tree boas and Amazon tree boas and my corralis ruschenbergeri and they're all active. They're all moving around. Mm. Um, you know, whereas if I came in and sat here during the day, then they're all sitting on their perch, and I you you see a different aspect of them whenever you see them at a different time. So, you know, I think Amazons can, can probably eat more frequently. That's not necessarily what I do. You know, I feed my Amazons every 10 days or two weeks, you know. But those things can, like, you can overfeed the hell out of them and get them big. Um, but you're right, It's it, you'll have a, sh- a potentially short-lived animal. Um, the oldest animal that I had I adopted uh, back in, when I was in, in North Carolina, and it was a boa constrictor. And it had been purchased, at that point, this is 10 years ago, it had been purchased 30 years or over 30 years earlier. Um, it was, And at that point when it was purchased, it was 3 feet long. So it was an import at 3 feet 30 years earlier. So this animal was now, whenever I got it, the animal was just in its early 40s or at the end of its 30s. The guy that had had it before me had it for 30-something years or 28 years, and he was feeding it um, squirrels that he shot in his backyard and he fed it. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I can send you pictures of it. This animal was amazing. It just, it was beautiful. Had an orange head Mm. and just really neat. And that animal was really healthy. You know, it, it, when you look at boas, it really frustrates me to see these, you know, tubes. Literally, they're just tubes. Right. um, Of just fat. You know, the boas that I like to see are almost like a loaf of bread. You know, they got square sides and Mm. they're muscular. And, you know, I see it all the time. And this is, this is the reason that i just stay away from facebook groups and forums or try not to post on them too frequently or or respond to people you know it's Mm -hmm. that i have a seven foot boa and it's a year old and inside you know inside me like several blood vessels already pop you know and i you know and i'm I'm about to hit my keyboard i'm about to start typing some rant and and then i just kind of sit back and i Take a drink of coffee. No. And I'm like, All right. Turn that off <laughs> and go away from that's it. That's enough of that. Because yeah. while they could be coming on and saying, you know, I need help with this here. Is this right? And as soon as you say, no, that's wrong, then they and 8,000 other people attack you, right? Yeah. And then yeah. say, well, you know, you're wrong. You know, you're starving your animals. And I'm like, well, you know, I produce really, well, really healthy, viable <laughs> litters every year for my animals. And. Yeah, so I must be doing something really wrong. You know, my, yeah. my goal is that I've got a homer
0: between 15
3: and 25 years old and they're all producing still really good litters, you know. So I must be doing something terrible. Yeah. You know? So, and you know, after your, you know, your speaker last week, you know, a friend of mine works on on uh digestion uh using Burmese pythons as a model. And right. you know, so this 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 talk about what happens, you know, during whenever they eat a meal for boas and pythons and and for pit vipers whenever they eat a meal, you get genes upregulated where the heart doubles in size, the the blood becomes really thick with plasma, the intestine changes shape, you know, and so yeah. on. You know that that's a very, um, I would imagine a very stressful thing to to undertake. Um, but the the thing that really gets me is the the thickening of the blood, you know, and and I question whenever people have these animals that they're feeding weekly how much strain is that putting on a heart? And even though that heart is doubled in size, how much strain is that putting on it to continually pump this really thick plasma-laden blood? And and you're seeing these animals die really young. Like, whenever I see these people post that their boa died at six years old, after having five litters, of course, right? You know, but died at six (laughs) years old. It's just, just I'm thinking, really? I've got boas that I don't even breed until they're seven or eight years old. Yeah. One, because I'm not impatient and I'm, I'm happy to wait it out, but... I think it's, uh, I think, and I, and I spoke with Vin Russo about this on a show a couple of years ago. I think people vastly overfeed their animals. Oh, I
2: agree. Um, you know, oh, I agree. <clears throat> you know? I, yeah.
1: I, I learned that very early on and tried to, you know, just totally, I think it was maybe even on that show, you know, just the whole idea of like uh, cycle feeding and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just just not feeding it every week, you know, that makes yeah. me feel good, but yeah. is it good yeah, for right. the snake, you know? Yeah, you know, it's, Ooh,
3: it's, it ate.
1: <laughs> you speak of, yeah, yeah, that's
3: right, you know, that's, that's where we all, that's probably one of the things that got us into these animals originally, right? It was feeding animals and going, you know, it's course. an amazing process and, oh, I got to yeah. do it, oh, I got to wait another seven days, you know? But now whenever it's like, you know, my, my adult boas, um, they're, you know, for the adult Central American boas, they're probably five feet in length. It's like, all right, you had a rat last month. Yeah, I'll, I'll think fine. of a defrosting <laughs> one. And I keep all my rodents. all my Everything feeds on defrost in, in my collection. And and I, I have all my rodents in a freezer in my lab. So it's just whenever I remember to take them out and bring them home. And for the last two weeks, I've been thinking, you know, I should feed the boas. And then I walk past <laughs> the freezer at the end of the evening, and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll get it tomorrow.
1: You right. know, and
3: I might do it tonight, but probably not. Maybe I'll feed them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the animals don't seem to, to have any problems as a result, as a result of it. And you know, speaking to to Vin Russo about it, you know, he feeds his ball pythons, for example, very different than his, than he feeds his boas. Where he feeds his boas very similar to mine, very these sparse feedings that are interspersed. Um, mm-hmm. And then I sh- I don't feed my boas from November, uh, October, November through to about March. Um, his ball pythons, he'll um, he has said that he will feed v- as much as they'll eat during that mm-hmm. period of time, and then they don't feed for the rest of the year. You know. They
1: seem to be the best at that.
3: I mean, they seem to self-regulate
1: themselves, you know? Like, they just shut down. down.
0: Yeah,
3: and people, I I think one of the reasons that they shut down so well is that people are overfeeding them. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, all of my my ball pythons, they get fed about every two weeks, and every single one of them eats defrost, and every single one of them will come out of a cage at a cold rodent on forceps and, Mm -hmm. and, and slam it. And and I think back to whenever I was a, a kid keeping ball pythons and I was feeding them every seven days and yeah. every six months you were guaranteed that one of them was going to shut down and just ignore its food and I'd have to go and mm-hmm. buy a live hamster to kick it in again and all that <laughs> kind of nonsense, you know. And, and God, done terrible that. Yep.
2: stuff. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> and can I do this shit? And that's got to be one of the biggest myths that are coming around with that because how many people who only have one or two ball pythons feed it every week, and then freak out every time it shuts down. That's and right, yeah. Needless trip to the vet. Yeah. And so and now we're going on that we're hoping that the vet that they took it to is not Knows the one that's like, about. yeah, missed it every day. What? What? Yeah. You know, that's exactly <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's yeah. like, so, ah uh, yeah. Uh, now we're off topic. <laughs> we are. <I'm> <laughs> well, we've gone into feeding now, you know. God but, damn it! But that, but, you know, to, to bring it back to inbreeding,
3: you know, feeding issues mm. can be an inbreeding thing as well, right? So as it these tongue deformities, face deformities, and so on, it can be an issue. So yeah. um, I think there's certainly an issue. And, and to relate that to the most significant form of inbreeding, which is which is essentially parthenogenesis, mm-hmm. um, I have got, you know, I have become this. A weird dumpster for parthenogenetic animals,
0: parthenogenetic <laughs> yeah. snakes.
3: Right, And it's great because it's, it's resulted in a lot of really cool publications coming out that has changed the way we look at parthenogenesis and made us realize that it's not this rare process, that it's actually really common in snakes. Um, but what I've seen is the animals that I've got that are parthenogenetic, um, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, get to about two years of age, and then they just shut down. They'll continue eating, but they just—they stop. They seem to stop metabolizing that food, and they lose weight, and they eventually die of what appears to be starvation. Um, and the only ones that I've got—I've got—I've only got two parthenogenetic animals right now. Out of all of them, I've got dozens in my freezer, all just chilling out, waiting for the right day. But um, I've got two at home, and the one is an, an albino ball python, and it's a, a parthenogen, and her parthenogenetic offspring. So she herself has produced parthenogenetically. And those two things slam food. In fact, she's, she's, um, she's due to lay eggs again in, uh, in two weeks' time. I'm um, having bred to a male, so we'll see does she produces parthenogenetically genetically or not. But a genetically, essentially very genetically depauperate animal. animal. Um, but they seem to be doing okay. But the question is, will they get to a point in a number of years' time? Because they're not that old. Are they going to mm-hmm. be like the, 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 the boa, the Parthenogen that I had that died recently, that they just get to a point and it just takes too much out of them and they just die? Um, whenever you're genetically appropriateate across your genome um you know issues arise as a result of that, but parthenogenesis doesn't result in complete um homozygosity across the genome. you get regions of of variation still, and our work is mm-hmm. showing that that is seems to be not randomly dispersed in the genome, so it's it could it it could be you know retaining some diversity that that helps an animal survive at least for a period of time to maybe be able to reproduce. But certainly parthenogens, um, show many of these traits that we see with inbreeding because it is an extreme form of inbreeding. We, you know, we had a paper out in 2012, um, on, uh, parthenogenesis and garter snakes. I think it was that uh-huh. paper. And if not that paper, the pictures may have been in it, but if not, I think they were in my review paper, um, from 2016. But, um, we show pictures of these deformed um, garter snakes. This was in my 2016 paper, 2015 paper. You see these deformed um, checkered garter snakes um, that were parthenogenetic, and they show these skeletal issues, um, head deformities, and so on, stillbirths. Um, you know, what we expect to see with high levels of inbreeding, which is essentially what they are.
2: Um, now, I know with parthenogenesis, in, because I have a few friends that are monitor breeders, and they almost actively avoid any kind of partho monitor as part of a breeding project. Is that just because of the inherent difficulties that you're going to have by breeding a parthenogen animal? Um, so that's that is a really that's a really
3: interesting question, and it's one that we are actively working on uh, in my okay. lab. Okay, um, not with monitors, but we are doing some. We're, we are trying to establish some work with monitors, specifically with Komodo dragons. Ooh. So let me tell you what parthenogenesis in that sense we often find that we find lineages that seem to be have this propensity to produce parthenogenetically so in captivity in zoos komodo dragons have this high propensity to produce parthenogenetically and i've got samples from a variety of zoos that have uh, uh, komodo dragons that have produced parthenogenetically and I'm waiting to screen those there. And you know if I can look at the stud book data, then we'll probably find that they're from one or two lineages. Um, my opinion, my belief, um, is that parthenogenesis is is a heritable trait. Okay. And the reason I believe that, um, so parthenogenesis, just to clarify for people, is not producing a clone of the mother, but it's producing what we refer to as a half-clone. The egg fuses with one of the cell bodies that is produced alongside it, that contains an almost identical set of chromosomes and that there makes the egg believe it has been um fertilized and that then develops so um the mother could be highly heterozygous but the offspring will be highly homozygous and only p- possess one of each of her chromosomes essentially doubled not necessarily doubled but just essentially so highly homozygous um hmm. Work that was done in... Um, and so parthenogenesis has been known for years in vertebrates. In fact, the, the first work um, that was sh- uh, shown was on domestic um, pigeons in like the 1890s, and then in chickens in the 1940s and 50s, turkeys in the 1950s. In fact, there was a whole program on research focusing on parthenogenesis in turkeys um, in Maryland um, in, uh, in the 1950s, and that lasted for about 20 years. And they found that... Um, parthenogens would be produced, and that if those lines were continually bred, the proportion of parthenogens increased. Um, so there seemed to be some heritability to it along those lineages. So if you were from a parthenogenetic lineage, you, produced, you had a high propensity to produce parthenogenetic offspring. Um, and we see it in boa constrictors. There's some lines of boas that seem to have a high likelihood of producing parthenogenetically. So for example, the majority of the samples that I've got all come from the Motley lineage, okay and and they're a great one because people you know regardless of their their understanding of, of parthenogenesis, whenever they breed a motley boa female to something some other male and they that's not a motley and they produce super motleys, then they know something weird has happened and I often get a phone call and and, and that's whenever we we were able to pick up samples from this kind of thing, and so we see it frequently in motley boas um uh we we've seen it in a few other bits and pieces, but um, they, they, there seems to be some heritability to it, which is the reason that one of the other reasons that with this Parthenogenetic Boa that I was able to raise up until she was seven or eight, nine years old, that's one of the reasons that mm-hmm. I actually actively bred her because then I've got offspring that we can now raise up and reproduce or back cross to themselves. So we're essentially <laughs> we're essentially inbreeding those. Now they were produced by a sexual male bred to a Parthenogen, and they are genetically more diverse than the than the mother and so on. Um, from that, those females, if they produce parthenogens, we'll see it immediately, and we'll be able to um we'll be able to test that genetically in the lab and that would conclusively determine whether there's some kind of genetic link to it, but I believe there is, which is why we see it in so many lines of Komodo dragon and so many lines of other monitor lizards that might not necessarily be brought mm-hmm. into captivity too frequently, but certainly we see it in a variety of different monitor species right, you know, which is hmm. you know, kind of kind of amazing and and they show this. High variation in uh, in viability. Some seem to be viable and, and seem to hatch and do fine, and others uh, just do not do well at all. Yeah, I've got one here that we've been working on that it came halfway out of the egg. It's got a big bulbous dome on its head, and uh, from a, a Varanus salvadori and um, salvadori, and,
0: and, oh, and we're working
3: on that there, you know, and just mainly to try and get the markers to be able to prove that it's parthenogenesis. We know it's parthenogenesis, but then we'll do something else with it down the line. Um, but um, I am aware of others that have hatched and seem to be doing fine. So the question is, do you want to raise it up and, and breed it, or do you not? And this kind of relates back to these, you know, when we talked about island populations and so on.
0: Right. Whenever,
3: whenever Parthenogenesis was was really first discovered, people were like, well, why would it happen? One thing was, well, for us, for snakes and so on, for, it's, it's been found in sharks, snakes, and a variety of birds and varanid lizards for this facultative parthenogenesis, producing these half-clones. All examples, apart from two, come from captive situations. So people have ascribed it to being this captive syndrome, just some, something about captivity. Um, and then in 2012, myself and, and a collaborator, several collaborators, um, discovered it in um, natural populations of cottonmouths and copperheads. And then Jeez. another friend of mine discovered it in natural populations of small-toothed sawfish, um, so it's an, an elasmobranch species, uh, and uh, so therefore it, it was happening in the wild. Um, I think that, uh, so we can no longer, we, we have to remove it from being that captive syndrome. It, it is something that, that does happen. Um, and I'm trying to think where I was going to go with that because then I got sidetracked because my collaborator is a guy called Gordon Shewitt, and you guys will be aware of the Shewitt line, um, carpet Python's oh, yeah, yeah. jungles and stuff like that. There. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Gordy and his brother um, uh, uh, did Brazilian rainbow boa, Hog Islands, and and jungle carpets. But Gordon is a is a an actor. He's a he's a co-author on many of my papers um, on parthenogenesis, and he's a really good friend of mine. So it's kind of funny that I keep hearing the Schuett line stuff brought up. and <laughs> I keep um,
0: mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm, ripping them mm-hmm. about it. Right. Yeah. So um, wherever I was talking about there, uh, we see it. Um, we see it in, in natural populations. So that that means that, that there is something more significant to it. Um, and oh yeah, that's where I was going. Right. So the idea is that if you were a female and you were washed up on an island like many of these animals are whenever they find populations, there's two things that you could do. One is you could sit there and wait for a male to appear, and then you could finally reproduce, hopefully, if you were compatible with that male. Or if you produce parthenogenetically, you could potentially do two things. If you are from the boas and the python lineage, these these old lineages of animals, they produce, because they have XY sex chromosomes, the parthenogens that they produce are female. So therefore you could produce a small founding population of females in the hope that at one point in time a male washes up onto that island and can then reproduce with those. Or if you're from the advanced lineages of snakes, the file snakes through to the cobras, through to the colubrids, through to the pit vipers and so on, they produce, they have ZW sex chromosomes and they produce male parthenogens. So if you're a female on an island on your own, you can produce... Potentially through parthenogenesis, you can produce a male offspring, and that male offspring can theoretically breed back with that female and produce offspring, male and female offspring, and find a small population. And therefore, hopefully, over time, new animals will then wash up onto this island and add additional genes into that population. So, parthenogenesis has been, you know, ascribed to this kind of um, it might be a holding on kind of method, you know, that you produce parthenogenetically when you need to, and then you can produce sexually whenever you. Uh, whenever there's sexual males around or sexual Mm -hmm. individuals around. And and a paper came out on sharks about that um, a year year or two ago that kind of shows this transition from sexual to asexual reproduction and back again. And we've seen it in boas, we've seen it in pythons, and it fits that. And, you know, um, we have... um, it, part of that breeding, that parthenogen, getting a, to a sexual male and getting offspring, we can breed those offspring back to each other and see if they're producing viable offsprings, and therefore that, that fits that finding a population kind of thing. We've also got um, at a collaborator's um, a group, a um, parthenogenetic copperhead and its mother. And we're trying to get it to breed back to the mother to see if we can produce viable offspring from that. <clears throat> and again, that fits that parthenogenesis as a, as a holding on kind of mm. strategy. Not a this is going to happen and that we're going to get a part of the genetic population and that's it. But as a way to um kind of at least find a small population until new new bloodlines can, can actually get introduced. So it's it's uh it, it, it then leads to that problem of inbreeding, but hopefully over a period of time if one animal washed up you might find others. Um doing the same thing. But but this you know, once they produce parthenogenetically, it doesn't mean that that's what they're doing the rest of their life. They certainly can appear to switch and, and produce sexually, and, and others can produce asexually. And then the other weird thing is that we find cases where we've seen this in reticulated pythons and we've seen it in boas, um, where part of the litter or part of the clutch is sexually produced and part of it's parthenogenetic. Oh, wow. So, yeah, weird things happen. And then wow. the newest one that we've got are, is and um, multiple cases of it. Um, where the male, um, the genetic material of the female's egg seems to largely be kicked out and it's replaced by the male's genetic material. So the mi- mi- the mitochondrial DNA is from the mother, but the nuclear DNA is primarily from the father. So you get a clone, essentially, of the father, um, but not of the mother. Um, mm-hmm. And Nick has Nick's talked about this a, a number of years ago, something different. I think he called it like... Um, null, like a null mutation you've probably heard about right. right, what he said, right well, the work that we've done kind of doesn't support the null mutation idea; it supports this androgenesis idea, and it can produce a male or a female offspring because they're x, y sex chromosomes. so weird stuff you know snakes do really weird things and and, and it's been shown that sna- that that organisms that can that can do really weird that can reproduce in really weird ways often reproduce in really, really weird ways. So they can get this mix of androgenesis and parthenogenesis, and you know sperm storage. Pythons are great at storing sperm. Yeah. You know, pit fibers are great at storing sperm. Like we, we've got the longest record of sperm storage in any vertebrate organism, and that's over 60 months in a an eastern diamondback rattlesnake captured as a juvenile. You know, produced wow. 19 viable offspring. We hear what? records of it. Yeah. Um. Uh, we we published a paper with myself and Gordon Shewitt, Um. I think in like 2012, 2011. Yeah, an eastern diamondback rattlesnake captured at a small size, kept in captivity away from males, and I think it was 60 months later, produced 19 offspring. It was like nine males, ten females. And we genotyped it, and we found uh, they were not parthenogens. They were actually sexually produced, so they had stored sperm. So they can do really weird things in storing sperm, which is great for conservation, you know, with habitat mm-hmm. fragmentation and so on. It means that if they've bred with a male a number of years ago, then they might still have that genetic material that they can then produce offspring with. But pythons can do the same thing. We've seen it in blood pythons, people talking about bloods producing clutches two or three years after they were mated. We hear it in ball pythons, which brings up another really interesting question and one that should be of concern to many people. Whenever we're crossing to all of these different lineages, one year we're breeding an albino to an anarthristic, the next year we breed that anarthristic to, to something else. And we right. produce heterozygous animals. Are you producing a heterozygous animal for the recent breeding, or are you, pre- or is there stored sperm, and therefore what you're selling to someone is not what they think they're buying, but something from a previous breeding? Um, that's yeah. <laughs> popped up a number of times. Yeah, and is, I've heard that about could, that before.
1: Dangerous, that could be tricky. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
3: So, wow. you know, you talk to Tracy Barker, and, and Tracy will say that I think she doesn't breed um, animals to the same type of if she breeds it to one male of a morph one year they either get a year or two off before they'll breed them again to make sure that they're not producing eggs or else you'll only breed it to that same type of morph and therefore at least you're guaranteed that that is the morph for the
1: lineage that you're getting gotcha well that makes sense yeah so in the wild and I think you might have hit on this a little bit, but has there been any studies to follow up with animals that you know are pathogenic and you know are they again
3: so in the wild um n- not yet what they've done uh, okay. my friend Damien has done this with um when they detected it in this in this population of of this very endangered um small tooth saw-, saw sawfish um right. they mm-hmm. found five or seven animals that were females which is what you expect with sharks because they're XY sex chromosomes so they produce the Y chromosome cannot you can't get a YY because it's just inviolable so they can get XX and XX would be female um, mm-hmm. same as we get in boas and pythons um, they found five or seven free living um, adult or sub-adult parthenogens um, so they were certainly looking like they could attain adult size and breed Um so there might there could originally be more and they would die just due to inbreeding issues um but or the effects of the comparable effects of inbreeding but those ones seem to be doing well um the other interesting thing about that is the population is very small very endangered and this is another reason why you could find if parthenogenesis is heritable you could get these individuals that are breeding that are carrying this trait that could result in producing parthenogenetic offspring um but they they seem to be at least to this point in time doing okay um the the problem is that so I've as I say I've bred a parthenogen to a sexual and produced mm-hmm. sexual offspring and the right. genetic diversity of those um, you could not tell was um, you could not tell it from from being a parth- the offspring of a parthenogen so looking at this figure of boa constrictors again the the original mother that produced that was sexually produced um, had 50% homozygosity in her genome the mother or the the offspring that she produced all had between 75 and and 85 percent homozygosity in their genome, not complete homozygosity, but very very high levels. Then breeding that to a male, a totally unrelated male, his genome was 55 percent homozygous, totally distinctly unrelated, another captive boa. They produced a the sexual male bred to that parthenogen produced an offspring, or produced offspring that had about 37 percent homozygosity in their genome. So you were recovering heterozygosity. You, um, you were losing that signature of homozygosity. The, and, and the offspring that we've got from that, the, the five offspring, are, are thriving. They're doing really well. So I think that if they can get past that in the wild, if the Parthenogen can survive long enough, and in captivity, mm-hmm. yeah. the offspring that they produce, as long as they were bred to an unrelated animal, I think you're going to be able to produce viable, healthy animals if they produce sexually. Now, do they produce sexually or asexually? The, the ball python that I've got at home that was donated to me, um, mm-hmm. you know, it produced parthen genetically, and I'm raising that, those animals up. Will the F2 generation parthenogen produce parthen genetically herself? We'll just have to wait and see. Um, but it's going to be very interesting with this, this clutch at the moment, and I hope she produces viable offspring. I palpated her, her, viable eggs. I palpated her last night, and the eggs were kind of small, so I'm hoping that it's not slugs, but... If she produces offspring, I bred it's an albino and I bred it to a clown, so you'll produce wild-type animals. I didn't want to breed it to an albino because then I'd have a genotype of things. But Mm, breeding it to another recessive trait, it means if I see wild-type animals, then I know she's produced sexually. So it's going to be very interesting, and that will fit into this transition of sexual to asexual and back again and so on. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think... Realistically, looking at this data that we've got, we haven't published it yet, but we will, will be. See, we, we will be soon. It shows that Parthid engines, if they can survive and if they can produce, and if they can produce sexually, they can produce offspring that are that are certainly um, appear viable and healthy. So it fits again into that holding on mechanism. You know, you, you stayed on the island long enough. You produced Parthid genetically, Your offspring grew up, and they were they were able to fit. Uh, they were able to feed and so on and then reproduce because this male washed up on the island. the offspring that they produce are now diverse, and that could then find the population that then um, establishes on that island.
1: So is there any kind so of cool. sex <clears throat> like a consistent sex ratio when it comes to uh, your findings with Genesis*?
3: No. oh yeah, there is yeah yeah, yeah. so um, oh. if you look at the um if you look at the phylogeny of snakes um, mm-hmm. so we've got it in uh if you go to my website, it's just booth-lab.org. Um, you can go to the publications section and um, you can find the papers on parthenogenesis and, and download them or access them at least. Um, mm-hmm. What you'll find, and there was a paper in 2015 just by myself and Gordon Shewitt about the phylogenetic distribution of parthenogenesis in snakes. It's basically a review paper. And we show, uh, we discussed the, the characteristics of parthenogenesis across the snake phylogeny. So we look at... Um, there's, a, there's a case of obligate parthenogenesis where they produce clones, and they're in the, um, the Bromini blind snakes, these little worm snakes. Um, mm-hmm. They're really basal in the, in the snake phylogeny, but then you go up to something like the boas um, and the pythons. Um, these old lineages of snakes, they produce only female parthenogens. They mm. don't produce males because they can't, because they have XY sex chromosomes, um, and the uh, YY appears uh, um, non-viable. Whereas the XX is a female and is viable. After the pythons, you get into these Acrocordus, the file snakes, um, and that then leads into the cobras and and so on. And whenever we look at our cases in file snakes, in king cobras, in um, uh, water snakes, garter snakes, uh, various pit vipers, various, you know, the rattlesnakes, the acistridon, the Um, kind of the fertilance, stuff like that, they all produce male offspring because they have ZW sex chromosomes. But the W chromosome is so reduced that you can't get a WW pairing that's viable. You can get a ZZ pairing that's viable. And in a a ZW sex determining system, ZZ is male, so they produce only males. What's interesting about that is that if we talk about viability, if you go back to the boas and the pythons that produce these all-female parthenogens, the Mm -hmm. offspring they tend to produce pretty healthy outwardly healthy babies to start off with so the eggs tend to hatch and the and the live birth seems to occur and the babies seem fine largely um and you get large litters so we you know in that first paper on boas we talked about two litters one of 10 and one of 12 so 22 viable Parthenogenetic boas and only one of those ended up dying early on um then we go into these advanced snakes, you know, the as I say, the acrocordus, the, the file snakes and the water snakes and so on. They totally reverse. You'll get primarily slugs and you have get one or two live offspring or stillborns. And of the live offspring they might be highly deformed. So I've got in my freezer I've got like prairie rattlesnakes that look like you know, their head is highly deformed and it looks like a like a club or a you know, like a club oh essentially. You know, you see the pictures in this paper also on checkered garter snakes, and they're all deformed. Um, so it changes around it. The viability changes. And, and as a result, Gordon, Shuet, and myself kind of gave parthenogenesis. We defined as two types, a type A and a type B. And a type okay. A being in these boas and pythons, the basal lineages producing viable offspring, only females, and so on. And the type B being in the advanced snakes and producing... High levels of infertile, infertile ova, high levels of deformities, and so on. So you do get, you get transitions in sex from female to male in, in the snake phylogeny, and you get changes in viability and so on. So it, it it does it does shift. And then, but with the boas and the pythons, whenever we bred that boa to a sexual male, the idea originally we didn't know boas were XY and we didn't know pythons mm-hmm. were XY sex chromosomes. We just we did a paper on that recently showing that. But at the time, we didn't. We thought that, that, that there were ZW sex chromosomes, like everybody had thought, at least it worked on snake chromosomes and sex chromosomes. Right. And if a male is ZZ and a female is sexual, ZW, then a parthenogenetic female would have to be WW. So we believed in our early papers that we were, that we were getting these WW females. So if you right. bred her to a male, it's ZZ, it's a ZZ to a WW, produces ZW offspring, which would be female. So whenever that boa was producing those babies I was taking them out and I was popping them and uh the first one was female I was like, All right, this is great. Right. And the second one was female, I said, There we go, this is phen- phenomenal. And the third one was male and the next three oh. were male. And that's whenever <laughs> my head was like, Right, well, what the hell's going on here? You know, I just was still born <laughs> Wait a minute. and I'm manually yeah. <laughs> buried Yeah, and we you know, we used that as a basis to be able to then show that, that boas and pythons were were X, Y sex chromosomes. Um but that's a good thing because it means that like, if this is back to that ancestral reason why you might have parthenogenesis, if you produce these female viable offspring and you produce a bunch of them that are on this island or wherever it could be um, and a male finally comes along and breeds with those, then the offspring that they produce are going to be males and females, not right. just all females. So you're, you're then producing an even sex ratio. So there's no skew at that point at that after that initial phase.
2: Okay. So... Now, is there a possibility that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we always say that, or I, I, one of the rumors we've always had is that you can have multiple sires to a clutch and or multiple sires to potentially a litter. Is there any way that uh, litter can be started as parthenogenic or there could be some parthos mixed in with some sexually produced animals or is everything yeah, going to be straight partho?
3: No, we do see that you know and okay. we've seen it. We, we haven't we've got a paper that we have finished up we just haven't submitted it yet um in fact i was just contacted by a breeder recently a friend that, that said they had that happen in uh in their collection and they're sending me samples so we'll probably add it into that paper but we do see it happen and the reason for it we're not really sure yet but i was mm-hmm. at a, a meeting about clonality um five or six years ago in california mm-hmm. and uh I was chatting to it with my um, kind of academic grandfather, a guy called John Avis, and and uh, and I was telling him about these 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 cases that we were having of, of of primarily sexual offspring with some parthenogens, and a lady behind me kind of turned around and she she said, you know, do you find that those parthenogens are smaller or they're kind of runty or they're coming out at the end, in terms of the 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 birth? And I said, yeah, that, that's exactly what we see, and she kind of suggested that this could be um, some kind of other issue going on in terms of um, uh, some kind of hormonal issue and so on. So we're still playing around with what it might be, but we definitely see that. Um, but in those cases, the parthenogens are often, you know, you know you know, there's something different. So, you, when, know you know, whenever we see these, whenever we see these litters or these clutches and people say, yeah, we've got these little runts, the question is, it run- mm-hmm. is it a runt or is it a parthenogen? And if it's a two wild-type animals producing it, then it looks like a wild-type animal, so you don't question it. If right. If it's a if it's an incomplete dominant trait and it produces or a heterozygous recessive trait and it produces a homozygous form of that then you might think something different but there's definitely we definitely see see that occurring and um I know that uh, um, some people have seen it in the lapids and stuff like that there in Australia so it's definitely it's definitely occurring that's cool
0: yeah that, I didn't even think about
3: that yeah. yeah, it raises the question, you know, in the litter or the clutch that you produce of wild-type animals, are they all sexually produced, or are you producing some parthenogens in it? And if they eat and stuff, are you selling parthenogens that could end up being really crap down the line? Or are you selling um, sexual offspring that, that could be fine? it's Oh, just, my God. <laughs> with the with yeah, oh, complexity so. of breeding systems and these different things that are going on, it really is something that, that can really screw up your mind a lot, and as a oh, breeder, yeah. you're thinking, "Well, what am I? What am I really selling?" You know, and and you know, many people don't, don't care, and and I'm sure that's fine. And people that buy it might not care, but um, you know, with sperm storage, with parthenogenesis, with androgenesis, all these different things, you could end up selling an animal that is. As I say, most of my parthenogens are chilling out in the freezer. <laughs> they just, oh they just, my god! They, they do great for the first couple of years, and then they just turn to crap. Um, right, and that could just be because they're primarily boa constrictors and rattlesnakes, but uh, that that we've got. But um, you know, it's it, you could sell something that appears outwardly healthy, and you think it's fine, and it's actually produced offspring, and it it might be a parthenogen. And and it's really common. Like people think, well, it's so rare. I've got to the point I no longer test samples for people if it's a ball python, a reticulated python, a boa constrictor. Copperhead, a cottonmouth, various rattlesnakes, various Thamnophus garter snakes, various Neurodia, because we've got so many examples of it. It's not a one-off; it's oh numerous, um, and therefore it's it's not a rarity. And which is why myself and Gordon Shewitt have been pushing the idea that we can use snakes as a real model species to study parthenogenesis. And in fact, we've got a paper that's hopefully hopefully going to be coming out soon about what. Parthenogenesis does to venom, for example. You know, whenever you get a parthenogenetic pit viper, and its genome yeah. has been highly reduced across it, right? So it's very homozygous. What does that do to the complexity of the of the venom that it produces? So we have a paper coming out about that, which is totally it gives a result that you would totally not think. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. You know, it's uh, it, it's it, it's still my hobby research. It's not what my lab does. Mm. It's basically what I do in the weekends and the evenings, and I get some undergraduates to help out with and so on, and I develop collaborations. But it's, it's, not, it's not the thing that finds my research. I've never had a research grant to study parthenogenesis. That's all just been, I do it for fun. So whenever, that's the other reason why I just don't test a lot of stuff for people now, because they, they call me up or they email me and ask me to test it. And I'm like, well, it's not going to result in the publication. And you're not willing to pay for it so i'm not willing to pay for it <laughs> out of my lab research yeah. fund you know so or right. use up my time for doing it unless it's a really unusual case you know like if it's something that i really want then i'll do it but uh, most of the times, i'm just kind of like yeah it's another boa constrictor yeah i can tell by the phenotype it's genetic. yeah they'll probably die you know so mm. all the stuff they don't want to hear but um it's pretty much the way it is yeah yeah so what we don't That's we don't have it in carpa pythons yet but we have it in uh We've we've got it in children's pythons, so oh, um, uh, really? but I'm sure I'm I'm sure it's happening in carpet pythons. Again, you know, um, I'm trying to think what what are the incomplete dominant traits in, in carpets?
0: Do you have many? Uh,
1: um, jag, well, caramel, yeah. hypo. Uh, the problem with jag like, but,
3: jag's are kind of crap anyway, right? So um, yeah, thank
1: you. Yeah, hypo
3: was <laughs> pretty new, right as well. So yeah, there uh, we. It, we might see zebra. it popping up whenever people zebra, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. seeing the original zebra at Paul Harris's place uh, many years ago. Yeah, oh, it was really no, cool. Really. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, many many years ago, maybe
2: 15, it probably 15, 17 looked, years ago. Probably a tiny baby. like the zebras that are out now. Now, very so. different. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It <was> <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was visually
3: stunning. I remember it. Um, you should get Paul Harris on again as a guest. He's a he's always got some really cool stuff. But I I, I yeah. went to his house. God, maybe maybe seventeen or eighteen years ago.
2: Yeah. Oh, um, wow.
3: Yeah, he's he's pretty cool. He does some really neat stuff and seeing his stuff on Facebook, you know, his animals are just remarkable.
0: You know? That was, Yeah, but I
3: think if people breed those uh, those incomplete dominant traits, that's where you might see it. You might see you know, if they breed it to a a wild type or something else you might see you might see ones popping up, you know.
2: But you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens over time. I'm sure it,
3: it's fun to be happening.
2: Would it would it be more? Uh, would we kind of see the parthenogenesis happen in maybe some of the more isolated populations or isolated subspecies of Morelia? I don't or,
3: think so. Okay, I don't, I don't is think
2: it's so. going to happen wherever. It, All right. Here's the here's the deal.
3: Right? We see it across the snake phylogeny. We see it in varanid lizards. Okay. We see it in sharks. We see it across the bird phylogeny and across the shark phylogeny. True. These are all or, these are all organisms that lack a thing called genomic imprinting, and geno- geno- genomic imprinting basically means that a male and a female have to contribute a certain set of genes in a certain combination for a viable offspring to be produced. Which is why we don't see it in mammals, right? Because right. you know, without that male contribution, the genes in that order can't be switched on. It's been it's been it's, a parthenogenetic mouse has been produced, but that was through pretty significant genetic manipulation. But if we look at all these cases in sharks and birds and snakes and branded lizards, they all use the exact same mechanism and you see the exact same traits, you see the exact same characteristics across it. And it's my opinion that this condition is a much more basal, a much more ancestral condition. It's not popping up. I don't believe it's arising or evolving independently in all of these um, lineages. I think it's a very old trait. Um, so therefore... You're just as likely to see it in an island population as you are in a in an animal from you know a mainland kind of collection or a mainland area locale. Um,
1: okay. If it's
3: if it's if it's under genetic control where it's heritable, we might see it more frequently in these kind of rare small population sizes. Uh, we might find it as a result of that likelihood of inbreeding, um, but when we have them in captivity, we inbreed the hell out of them anyway. So I don't think it's going to make a difference
2: <laughs> to get the link
3: it back to inbreeding there. Right. You know, so
2: yeah. Yeah. It's good to get a circle background. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess the only thing we have left for you, Warren is uh, we do have the closing questions. Um, and obviously the closing questions are the ones that'll be the most head scratching out of all the questions that we've asked you today. I'm um sure. yeah, of course. So um, <laughs> Warren, if you could own any reptile on the planet uh with no limitations whether it be from uh price tag or legality, what would it be and why? It's probably like an albino ball python.
3: No, it's not an albino ball python. It's, it's oh my I god. I can tell you right
0: get off. now. <laughs> get up? No, I can, I can off. tell you. I can tell you right now. It's
3: very simple. Um, it's a yeah. Corallus Ruchenbergerei from Trinidad, a Trinidad tree boa. Um, okay. These things, uh, over the years I have owned them but never actually had them in my hand. Um, I had them in the U.S. maybe 15 years ago, but they 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 didn't live long enough to get exported. Um, and they're no longer found in captivity. So Nick Mutton, myself, Nick Mutton, uh, Jeff Murray, uh, and several other people want these things. And the reason why... Uh, I don't know. For, for, they're a big ass tree right? Uh-huh. They're they're bigger than the than the Costa Rican locality Russianburgari, but they tend to be patternless, like patternless bronze and patternless gold. Uh, aggressive. Will will literally kill you and then go after your family and your friends. Yeah. And them, you know. <laughs> but there's something about it, and I I've spent a lot of money in my early days trying to get them, and uh, and we, we just keep they just keep evading uh, our capture, you know, and. Uh, and I think we might have tracked down some in Europe, so we might end up getting some soon. But um, that's it. And, you know, the other one would be corallus Croupani. You know, the, the Croupani's tree boa, which was just rediscovered yeah. in the wild
0: yeah. last year. Yeah. I think that's pretty
3: amazing. Again, it's somewhat of an ugly-ass animal, but I think just the fascination behind it, I think, is is pretty amazing. Um, I think they are the two. And you know there's a lot of other things that I'd be, you know, I'd love to have. You know, Dominica boas. You know, the clouded boa, boa nebulosa. Um, they are so rare. Um, uh, they're just remarkable again, but an ugly-ass snake
0: in many ways. <laughs> it's aggressive, you know. <laughs>
3: Saint Lucian boas are the same, boa rufius. Um, and it's funny because a friend of mine, um, this guy that that uh, we got the um, original Amazon tree boas that I got from, um, mm-hmm. he had a, a remarkable collection of uh, of locality boas. He was a guy called Clive Osborne. And he had first generation or wild caught Hog Island boas that turned from the regular color to milk white and pink at night. Just amazing. Um he had Dominica Boas, he had St. Lucia Boas, he had all of these things that were just so rare and you just couldn't get. Um and at the time I just went, Oh, he's got them, that's cool. You know, but now I think back, like, What the hell? That was
0: amazing. John grabbed
3: them <laughs> and, all, yeah. <laughs> oh, whenever he died suddenly, I was like, Oh god, I should have you know, I should have gone over and seen what we could do with his collection. It got right. you know p- pillaged by a lot of people, you know. Sadly, I was moving to the US at the time, but but things like that. I think Dominica boas would be cool, Saint Lucia boas. But if it was one, it would have to be the Trinidad Trinidad tree boa, and that's the reason why. Um, I uh, I take students to Costa Rica um, most Thanksgivings to do to, for a tropical ecology course, and we you know we stay in the rainforest for a week or two. Um, lots of snakes, which is a lot of fun, but. Uh, what we're thinking about doing next year is um, Trinidad, it's totally for me because of Trinidad tree boas. <laughs>
0: um, the other option is the
3: Galapagos, um, so it's uh, it's either
2: either one I'd be happy with, but yeah, Trinidad so, tree boas, that's it. So Warren, if you're arrested in Trinidad, we know why. Um, <laughs> snakes by my pants. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> can assume. Like, yeah, well, they got Warren. It's like, oh, yeah. damn. I don't think it's gonna happen. I've
3: got, I love my kids and my wife and stuff too much. I don't think it's uh, <laughs> my job. Uh, you know, <laughs> as much get as one I, of the
2: grad students. You know, be like, hey, yeah, if, uh, yeah the, the undergrads. <laughs> yeah, a's uh, for you want to get an A? All right, yeah. you know,
3: put these in your You're boots. My
2: man, exactly. That's yeah. Totally dumb. Well, don't ask the,
3: the problem is that I then would have to capture them in the wild. So then the likelihood is that I would be killed by them while capturing. Okay.
2: Them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah. Grad students,
3: you're doing it the wrong way.
0: <laughs> so. Grad
3: students are very valuable. Undergrads, um, undergrads, are, use them. They're, they're, are they expendable? I shouldn't really say that, you know. No, so I, maybe. I, I would. <laughs> maybe high school
0: students at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Why did you bring
3: a lot of homeless people with you to Trinidad? Say nothing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cheryl, I, I feel it's, that's just unethical. But no, I that's would. Um, I would not. I would not bring them back. But I would love to see them in the wild. They would be. would be awesome. And that would. That would then, of course, create more um, kind of pain in me that I've seen them and held them and looked at them and not (laughs) only...
2: And
0: left them.
3: (laughs) And And
2: left them. You're like, no, no. (laughs) I guess that does also kind of answer the next question, which is if you could go herping anywhere in the world, where would you go and what would you be hoping to see?
0: Or is there something else?
2: So... um,
3: there's a couple of things, you know. I think Dominica will be great. St. Lucia will be great. I think the Lesser Antilles would be amazing. So Dominica and St. Lucia for Boa Nebulosa and Boa Rufius. I think the Lesser Antilles for um, uh, Corallus Grenadensis and Corallus Kukai would be kind of neat. Trinidad would be great for Corrales Um I think seeing, you know, um, Amazon Basin, Emeralds in the Wild would be amazing. But I also think, you know... I've never made it to Australia. I know you guys haven't mm. met yet, right? So I keep mm. hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <I will.
2: laughs> I'm going to I'm going to mute my mic and scream for a moment. Continue. Yeah.
3: Uh, I think Australia would be neat. I think I think to see something like an Emperlianthus in the wild would just be remarkable. Oh, um wow. I think seeing a diamond python in the wild would be kind of cool and yeah. my uncle lives in Sydney and and I and I you know I keep trying to find an excuse to get over and I've got friends that live there and it's just the expense. You know, I think i had the opportunity to go and work in australia zoo in between my uh degree and my phd mm-hmm. and as as an intern and um i then got a job back in belfast in the lab that i was then going to do my phd in. so i stayed there for the summer and extracted dna for a summer and didn't go to australia and then i contacted them and they were like well why don't you come over um, after your phd and spend time and uh and straight after my PhD, I got a postdoc in North Carolina, so I didn't do it then either. So again, that that deterred me from going to Australia. And then over the last four years, I've um, produced two offspring that would make it very expensive to then travel to Australia. So I think mm-hmm. herping in Australia would be a lot of fun for many different reasons. A lot of little monitor lizards and stuff would be kind of neat. Um, I think the, the work that Ari's doing on bowling's Pythons, I think seeing those in the wild would just be... It would just be mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd love to see Timor Pythons in the wild. I'd, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm fascinated by these little um, um, tree vipers, you know, the Waggler's vipers and all that kind of stuff. And, like, seeing mm-hmm. eyelash vipers in Costa Rica is so much fun. Um, but I think seeing those in the wild would be really cool. So I think it would be very hard. If somebody said, right, you can go one place... Which one is it? I think it'll be really hard for me to sit down and and say, right, it's (laughs) going to be this one because (laughs) yeah, you know, every day it's going to change and it's it's always going to be like I want to see Trinidad tree boas, but I don't want to see Trinidad, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's just uh, animals. Whereas (laughs) Australia, I could do other stuff and you know, herping's a lot of fun, but I don't want to herp 24 hours a day, you know. Right. But yeah, (laughs) so that that it's there's there's too many places that I'd like to go to, to see. Too many different animals. You know what the problem? I, I think I've realized that I'm just
2: stupidly indecisive.
0: <laughs> I am too. <laughs> oh yeah, I, yeah.
2: I yeah, it's a given now. Uh, oh. Indeed. There we go. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Lauren is if if you have any contact information you want to throw out there for people to get in contact with you, whether it be about the parthenogenesis, the research that you're doing, or Pick up some cool boas or top boas you want to throw that out there for them,
3: yeah, sure, so
2: as far as the boa stuff goes and Python stuff for
3: what I keep, um I do have a facebook page it's I think it's like boa booth, I don't know if it's boa dot booth. see the way I see that play on words there It's phenomenal <laughs> um, the uh, I've got that and i I actively try and update that. Um, I go through periods of where I don't, but um whenever. Females are gravid and babies are born. I I try and update that, um, and then I I get dragged into the Instagram world by a friend, and it's, I think it's exa- the exact same thing, like boa dot booth or something. So I try and put up pictures on that there, um, so people can message me through either of those. And if they if they want to contact me, otherwise they can just simply type my name into Google and either type University of Tulsa or type parthenogenesis, and somehow or another it's gonna it's gonna revert to my university website which will have my email address on it or else it will revert to my web page which is um, www.booth-lab.org and again there's contact info on that as well so there's there's i'm not hard to track down and that's i've seen that whenever papers on parthenogenesis come out within a few weeks i get inundated by other people either wanting information (laughs) or having other examples (laughs) if i showed you my lab i i can show you filing cabinet drawers full of shed skins from all these different
2: animals that are potentially part of the genetic. So I'm pretty easy to get. Gotcha. All right.
1: Yep. Okay.
2: Well that's awesome. And, you know, thanks for coming on and talk giving us another like geeky science show. I love these. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks yeah. a lot. thanks for the invite. It's um it's always great to talk about
3: the work, but it's uh, I've I've been a fan of your show for quite a while, you know, so it's uh I like it whenever Nick comes on and uh, and so on and Ari oh, yeah. and stuff. You hear something I oh, Yeah, I Also, like I like to hear breeders talking about their experiences. You know what? You know the reason we've got these animals in captivity is because people have worked with them and can breed them. You know, so and that then helps the rest of us. So I think hearing people's experiences is is great. You know, so yeah. Keep up the good work, guys. It's great, and I hope you both get to Australia at some point.
0: <laughs> ah, damn it! <laughs> See that last little dagger thrust. Ah, oh, God! <laughs> no. <laughs> That's it. Shut down the show. I'm done. I'm done for <laughs> tonight.
2: So does that mean you're not going? I cannot. And Eric's going to go with like my stand-in, which is Rob. And it's going. I'm going to die a little on the inside and more on the outside. So yeah. Uh, is yeah. 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 I, I got to talk to Nick. Uh, yeah,
1: I got to talk to Nick. He'll probably yeah. go. He always does, unless, unless he's building another <laughs>
2: car. I mean, you know. Yeah, what
1: should be doing, doing at the
3: moment, right? Everything yeah. on Facebook is just like a some kind of fiberglass thing going on. I'm like, yeah, come you. on, Nick.
0: Yeah. As much as
3: I like cars, you know, that kind of style of Corvette. Snake? He's probably going to hate me because that Corvette I just don't like. That that age of Corvette. <laughs> uh, a, my, my collaborations with, with Nick probably just ended right there. You
1: know? just, it's so, done just now. It's You're not getting he anything. Just, he just man hulked his protein drink and just squeezed <laughs> it right out of the bottle.
0: <laughs> you know, the
2: email tomorrow is going to be great. So
0: yeah, all right. Indeed,
2: I'm sure.
3: I'm sure. Um, whenever we finish up the work that we're doing right now on scrub pythons, uh, Nick might want to come on and talk about that if if the results turn oh, out nice. to be interesting. So I don't know if you oh, guys yeah. know about it, but if you
2: don't know about it, I can't say a thing. And if you know yeah, about um, it, you
3: know it is what it is. So you going to be one
2: of those things that I don't know about it, but Eric knows about it, and now i got to go ask Kim. Oh, no. That's, it's that's, in that's the an vault. annoying text message. What's in the vault, <laughs> Owen?
1: Can't get it out. <laughs> uh, so you know it? Oh, wow. So, yeah, What's this, dog? This
2: is...
0: <laughs> What the hell is this? you got right, go to go to Australia on. to find out the answer. That's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> you. you know what? I
3: should go to Australia. Yeah, no, I should yeah,
2: now, go. Yeah, everyone that. can go to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll what's what's, what's going uh, right, to happen to the double. show
3: whenever you go to Australia? Is it going to be –
2: I'm going to – it's going to be – we're going to be done for a week so Owen can cry, and then uh, when, <laughs> when Eric comes back, it's just going to be him and Rob for at least another week till I get off of being angry. Uh, so, uh, yeah. That <laughs> should be no. good.
0: All right, oh, well it's man. been it's been fun, Warren. All right, all right guys, thanks a lot, and uh, keep yep. up the right. good work.
3: Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, bye.
2: Oh, you got seven See seconds. You quick, go to close all up Australia. the show. <laughs> I, know I mean, know Come it.
1: on. <laughs> all right, that's the right. Pull out the goddamn want... credit card and just put it on the
2: card. The credit card is a problem. We're not having this discussion on a live uh, freaking podcast.
1: Yeah, we're in overtime now. Nobody can hear us. But you know,
2: they, they, the people who will download this. Listen, man,
1: all I want to say, I'm just going to say this to you, and you can don't do whatever this. you want. Don't no, do this. this don't do this. right now. Don't, we don't like, need to do this. Look, you know, life is short, man. <laughs> You know, Uh, you reflect back on it. You could probably talk to Jim about this. He would probably relate, you know. (laughs) We can't really talk to
0: Jim about a lot of things right now. You (laughs) You young guys, you don't uh, don't
1: understand, man. You just don't uh, get it. You know, you think you got your whole life ahead of you. And, uh, you know, the world is your oyster and all that crap. And, uh, you know, you're going to be like, man, you know, I wish I would have went on that trip with Eric uh, and Rob. Like, like, (laughs) I
2: couldn't... Oh, like I'm not going to be able to convince you and Rob to go back with me when I'm more financially
1: stable and can go. Dude, you know, every year for probably the next 10 years, <laughs> if I can exactly. afford it, that's where so, I'm going to be going. Exactly. exactly.
2: <laughs> so as much as this might hurt, as much as this might
1: but suck, see, we're not going to go I back into coastal to. territory, dude. I don't you know think what
2: I mean? it's hey. It's okay. The extension <laughs> of my want for reptiles is I'll be able to find out wherever the hell we go. We could go to Africa and we could dig up a ball python. I'll be like, I found a freaking wild ball <laughs> python. I don't care.
1: <laughs> I want a picture of that. I am Shut YouTubing up. the shit out of that. <laughs> Shut up. He's holding the uh, royal python. <laughs> uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> so next week's show you're in charge of it what's the what's what is it which is terrifying uh brian
2: waterloo is coming on and he's going to talk to us about uh lace monitor breeding as well as uh he does a lot of work with the lace monitors uh some nile monitors uh and he's worked with some tree monitors so it is going to be a monitor-esque show uh and we're going to talk about the caging requirements because a lot of people don't really seem to understand it the little baby Nile monitor you got at the show for $45 cannot live in the 50-gallon-long tank that you provided its entire life. You know, this is... You needed some Mm. big space for these guys, and that's just to keep it properly, not even to mention how much these cage requirements are for breeding. So, And obviously, lace monitors are gorgeous. We might even get into some croc monitor talk, and uh, I know that he's listened to every single one of our Backlogs of Boland's Python show So who knows that might come up too So we'll see Oh he's a fan of the Boland's huh He had Boland's he had a pair of Boland's And uh He he got rid of them And then uh Worked more with the lace monitors And now he's building his reptile Building and he And I had like an hour long conversation On the phone because he went back and listened to All the um Bolins episodes and he knows Ari, so he apparently picked Ari's brain, so now he's itching to get back into Bolins Python. So that could happen. Yeah. Which I mean, if you breed Bolins Pythons and Lace monitors, go to hell. Because it's like you've gotten two of the big whatever, you've gotten like, you know, the the, the, the hardest Python and you're getting one of the hardest monitors to breed too, so Outside of Australia, I know I said that last time, and like everybody in Australia is like, "What do you mean? I just put mine outside." You're in Australia; it, it, it's, it's very, it's a lot easier for you. So, you know, but yeah, it right. should be a good show, and we'll see what's up. And then I'm working on a few other shows because I really don't want you to fire me for Rob, and uh, it's a very oh, wow. possibility.
1: He he was in the new uh, he was mentioned in the new Pythons of the World. By oh God no! You know I, mean? I, I don't see uh, Mr. McIntyre's name oh, on that book.
0: Oh Jesus, he's a publisher. <laughs> oh,
2: that's it. Nah. Pythons of the World, Volume Three, will be written by me. There you go. Uh, there you
1: go. <laughs> nah, you're fine. He he, you know, Rob doesn't. Uh, you know, he doesn't have your same sense of humor, and he believes in Bigfoot, so you you're safe. <laughs> what
2: What is this show? Why are you coming at me with everything that I can't handle right now?
1: I don't now? know. I you don't know. know Maybe it, I'm tired. What,
2: <laughs> do you see what Salemi's trying to do on my freaking Facebook page with these, like, dating websites for sex? I'm going to kill him.
1: <laughs> see, you... You're letting people troll you, dude. You just got to pretend. Like the ultimate troll would be you saying, yes, uh, I believe in Bigfoot. No, (laughs) no. I mean, that would be the ultimate troll. You just got to flip it.
2: I refuse. (laughs) It's never going to happen. My father posts up this thing that these Scottish – paleontologist found like dinosaur footprints and then he right. spent an hour trying to convince me that clearly Nessie can just grow feet and walk out of the lock anytime she <laughs> wants. I was screaming across
1: the freaking office. It's like, it's <laughs> just like my, uh like this past weekend on Easter, we go to my parents' house for dinner or whatever and my dad, he has like these, uh let's just say he has these ideas of the way <laughs> like the way the world works, I don't know, man, when it comes to like <laughs> politics and conspiracy theories, he goes deep, man. <laughs> he really goes deep. And it's less like, all right, dad. All right, dad. And then, you know, and I think what he tries to do is just try to see like how I will react. Like he's trying to get the reaction out of me. And yep. there's a certain point. What I've learned though, is I just, I don't, I don't react anymore. And it kinda, I can't, I can't help <laughs> it.
2: I, I can't, it's, you know eventually he beats me down and i react and then it's game on for at least an yeah. hour or so so yeah you see you don't you don't you don't work with your father and sit around no. and near him all the time no so. no <laughs> no i don't
0: <laughs> anyway uh,
2: now that we're done with the owen therapy session of the episode um yes <laughs> how do you on?
1: feel i you, so much better. <laughs>
2: oh, good, good, good,
0: good.
1: So you'll be good. You'll be going to Australia then. Very good, very no. good. Decision made. Uh, now. We move on.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, so next week we're talking monitors. That's going to be awesome because I don't really know too much about monitors, and I know, like you and and Andrew and Rob and all you guys talk about monitors, and I'm just kind of like, okay, my it's not. A, it's not a python. What? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> my interest with monitors comes
2: in the fact of that, you know, they're really cool to play with, really cool to see, really cool to kind of learn. It's like a miniature dinosaur. Oh, I yeah. Hate having, I hate having them in my house. It's like, I, get them out of here. But with that, you know, it, it's, it, it's one of those things like where I'll toy around with a monitor, and it'll be awesome for like about a week month maybe and then i'm like all right i'm i'm not a lizard guy i am a snake guy so but they're still cool and i mean unfortunately hanging out with andrew so much it it, you can't help it but get dragged into these kind of things and obviously when we went out to chicago and checked out uh brian's lace monitors they're just gorgeous animals so
1: yeah Oh my god
2: it's very i want to get back into the i can admire them from afar like you know right now i have three nile monitors and three mangrove monitors and a beaded lizard and a helo monster it's like how did this happen so
1: (laughs) uh awesome okay yeah well i'm looking forward to that that will be cool and uh uh i will be cool to uh kind of like be the other side of it it should be (laughs) interesting (laughs) you just show up and pretend like you just like, you know, just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just do The Owen part. Yeah. 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 So that's good. Um, yeah, I, uh, real quick before we uh, jump off, I did, and I didn't really didn't get to mention this at the beginning or did I, I don't Mm -hmm. remember, but pythons of the world volume three came in the mail today. Um, wow. Very cool book. Um, I just kind of flipped through it, but uh, it looks like it's going to be uh, uh, pretty good. You know, um, this was the one that everybody was waiting for forever because it goes into, like, a lot of the species that are near and dear to you and me, you know? Like, God, I have to get this book. Uh, yeah, Timors and White Lips. Dude, where do you see the White Lips in here? You know, like, they have all oh. those White Lips, and I I got to track down a copy of that paper. Uh, because the guy who, uh, you know, me and Rob were talking about this today, but yeah. um, just like the different... Um, the the, different the Bennetts forms, and all the other you know, um, White Lips, like, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them are just like, uh, you know, specimens they found in... Floating in, in jars. Jars yeah. and stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to read that paper, well, but it's a very cool book. You remember, do you remember, like, a couple of years ago, there was that
2: red White Lip that everyone was freaking out about? It's, yes, and it was one of the things is that the the one of the white lips that was in the jar had a red red pigment. So everyone's like, "Holy crap, that's it!" And I'm like, "Well, or you don't know whether the thing in the jar got its red pigment because of what it was floating in for a number of years." And uh, you know, and then it turned out that thing was like I don't know, soaked in Gatorade for um or Kool Aid or something for the overnight, which turned it red. But yeah, it was one of those things. But it right. would be very cool to see these different types and localities of white lip. So Yeah, it's it's, not, it's pretty not cool. good for my wallet, but you know, no. it would be cool. No. But a
1: lot of them they're not even available.
2: So it's I know not like, you know, you can uh And yet and sometimes you know, then things become
1: available and then I you know so Yeah, and what's weird is, you know, of course, today, because of my uh, Sri Lankan python, I kind of was like looking (laughs) at the, uh, I flipped immediately to the Indian python to see if there was an actual subspecies. And it looks like the barkers did not recognize the subspecies uh, of the Sri Lankan python and just kind of lumped it all under the Indian python. Wow, okay. Which was pretty interesting. And you know, another thing I found interesting was, and I guess mm-hmm. it's just because the work hasn't been done, but I thought for sure there would have been, you know, some type of separation as far as the scrubs go. But uh, pretty much all of amethystina was uh, was lumped together. Into, together. So, and there's some really cool looking. I mean, some really wild looking scrubs in here.
2: But with um, white lip, did they, did they put them under their or did they put them in Leo Python?
1: I believe they were still under Leo Python, which was another thing that kind of surprised me hmm. because uh, I thought that, I, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I've seen your white lips. Yeah. Um, and I know my ring pythons and they are from what I see, very similar, but you know, I, again,
2: I would. Go by the—that's just my personal thing—is I, of course, you know I know that certain papers haven't been vetted and it's not the thing of blah 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 blah. But you know I I I definitely like the idea of them being uh, with the ring pythons in Bothriechilus as well as having uh, Timor's in Maleo python with retics. Yes. Okay. Yeah,
1: and you know what's what's kind of cool with uh, with that one in particular with the Timor python um mm-hmm. which uh there's actually possibly another don't uh, do this
2: form <laughs>
1: species uh I didn't really read the details of it but um damn it. what they talk about is it's almost like this patternless uh, I'm trying to find the where it's at um mm-hmm. it's like a patternless uh animal that's from a specific island and I know me and Rob were talking about it earlier but uh oh shit can't believe I can't find it but man it's really wild uh it kind of reminds me anymore. it kind of reminds me of like uh there it is um Technically, this species will be identified as uh, Timorensis at this time. And for this reason, we include in this count, account. However, it is undoubtedly the sister species of Timorensis. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know what that means. I guess that is similar to like what you would see with uh, carpets and bread lie. And it looks like a patternless. That's so weird. A patternless scrub python with a Timor Python head. That's it doesn't so have weird. like the normal uh you know Timor Python. You know like the end of the tail of a Timor Python? Yeah. You know how it's like a solid color? That's pretty like much section down, they just become Yeah. Yeah. Well the entire body is like that. Really cool. God so, damn it. I can't wait to I can't wait to dig into it because, you know, you know my love of Pythons and uh, I think it should be an awesome book. And then I guess after this book, then they have the Blood Python book coming out, or short tail Python book coming out, and then that's it. That kind of puts it right. to rest. The only disappointment that I have with this is that they never cover uh, Angolan pythons, and they never cover uh, African rock pythons. So I guess they're just kind of left out. Maybe
2: there'll be a pamphlet or a small two-shot book. <laughs> i mean well, i don't the cool I don't thing know is what they would that, add to that
1: uh, I, I i i got a bunch of uh old magazines um the uh vivarium magazines and in yeah i got both too. <laughs> so in the in there they did an article on african rock pythons and then they did an article on angolan python so at least there's something uh-huh. there that uh but duns is in here uh you know all the favorites, man. All right, all right, all right. The... All right I'm still <laughs> already. Jesus, you know, yeah. I go get a book. God, taboos and MacLots and all that stuff. So cool stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I ordered it from a Mike. Uh, what's his name? Mike. Let me just I'll pull it up real quick. So some if somebody's interested in getting it, you can just get it from VPI's site. I'm sure. Uh, but I ordered yeah. it from. <clears throat> Uh Mike Crick Books. Um, that's where I got it from. Cool. So yeah, all right. Let's uh let's wrap it up and uh pretty cool well, uh show. Well, what's that?
2: I would just say before we quick wrap it up is that uh we do have to talk about how the Northeast Carpet Fest T shirt uh is live. So if Yes. You know, if you are planning and attending or just want to collect the t-shirts definitely go to uh where'd you post that up morelia uh python radio facebook page uh follow the link and order your t-shirt they'll have it mailed out to you obviously jeff uh frederick did the design again for us so we got that going and uh, again this year it's hopefully we'll get some uh, a good amount of money raised up for us ARC. So the t-shirt is live. I will throw the link quick into the uh, Morelia Python radio chat, and I will also start chucking it up a bunch of places after today. So,
1: Yeah, don't wait till the very last minute and then complain when you can't get the shirt. I swear to God, if
2: any of you come (laughs) to me when this is over, I swear to God, you have 30 days. You have less than 30 days now, but you have 30 days. Order your shirt. They will only be open for a limited time. There will be no reprints. You will have, no one will be able to get a box or a few of them after it is closed out. You need to go order them now.
1: So do not wait. Yes. I just, uh, Warren just, uh, sent me a link to the, uh, uh, Bob Ashley's, um, uh, publishing company. Um, and, yeah. uh, it has the book for sale. So I just put it over in the chat, uh, the link. So awesome. if you're looking for it, uh, it's over there. You, you can, uh, pick it up that way as well. Um, yeah, that's cool. The shirt is awesome. Jeff did a great job. Uh, really happy with, uh, lucky number seven should be good. Yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah. Just tons of cool stuff. So, um, yeah, I can't wait. It's gonna be here before you know it, too. You know. So I, I wanted to mention this because I got depressing. quite a few messages. Uh, uh, quite a few messages about this. Um, just to to clarify, um, one, you don't have to have carpet pythons to come to Carpet Fest. No, um, <laughs> that's number one. Two, if you're a newbie and you're kind of like afraid or sitting on the fence of like how the you know how the group will act. Hey man, that's what it's all about. Basically so, like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, you yeah. know.
1: <laughs> so I mean, it's a great group of people, um, you know, um uh,
2: uh, I is shady. I wouldn't go near him at all if you're coming to <laughs> Tar. He's
1: Yeah. I don't yeah. There's certain people to stay away from. That's for sure. But Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um I would definitely uh, you know, say that that's what, that this this is kind of what it's and what it's about, you know, if you're interested in getting into uh, carpet pythons or you know, maybe you're interested in Moralia, maybe you're interested in arboreal uh, pythons and boas, maybe arboreal pythons, maybe arboreal snakes just in general uh, you know, there's a mix of all types, I mean the short tail guys come um, you know mm-hmm. uh, so, you and, know, and the condo people come you don't have
2: and because you're hosting, you get to see your collection. And you don't have just Carpet fed. You have a very, uh, very collection. So it's going to be one of those you can definitely come out and check out what uh, Eric's got going on. And for all you know, you might come there and totally fall in love with Papuan Pythons and then leave there saying that you fell in love with Papuan Pythons at Carpet Fest. What kind of sentence is that? So, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah. For not? sure, uh, that I think they will be the hit. Uh, no doubt uh, I think so yeah so so uh yeah uh northeast carpet fest um we're gonna get the auction going real soon um just, yeah. just comes down to time and all that kind of stuff but uh for sure uh in the meantime the the uh uh north no shit southwest there's <laughs> so many of them there now. we go southwest uh, i love it auction is going to be live um and their info and they have a shirt for sale as well which is pretty awesome Austin did a really good job uh with that and um i have to go over and pick up that as well as uh i have to buy our shirt so um, yeah so do i we suck at this <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So there's that. So our website is MorelliPythonRadio.com and uh, our email is info at MorelliPythonRadio.com. If you have questions, comments, maybe guest suggestion, et cetera, et cetera, or maybe you want to come on the show. uh, Yeah, it works. Feel (laughs) feel free to reach out. Um, And as far as myself. Uh, ebmorelia.com I just kind of tweaked my website a little bit uh the collection page uh to get all the different species that I'm working with uh up there so if you're interested in seeing what I'm working with uh you can go over and check that out I got tons of eggs about to hatch and (laughs) I'm 14 (laughs) days away from hatching uh the good thing about maternal incubation is you're not tempted to cut the eggs because you have to The mom won't (laughs) let you do that yeah so Yeah. yeah so that's always good uh that will be the first clutch that i have hatching which should be around april 14th or 15th somewhere in there and that is an uh pop one carpet clutch um and i can't wait to see what hatches out so Yeah, if you're interested in any of the stuff, again, my website, ebmirena.com. You can see uh, on my breeding diary uh, the pairings that I have going on and uh, what has laid. Um, So, yeah, that's all I got.
2: Cool. Uh, For me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com and also rogue-reptiles on facebook.com. We do have the snakes up for sale, uh, jungles, uh, iJs. (laughs) Ha! And granites, uh, granite IJs. Um, we also have some jungles over there, and that's ah, shit. It. <laughs> None of a, <laughs> God damn it. Um, those are the only animals we have up for sale, because those are the animals we, only animals we have. I can't run on in here. Uh, but we uh, are starting to get eggs now. We have the clutch of jungles, which are a repeat pairing of what we had last year, as well as we have the split clutch with Jason Balin for the granites as well coming down the road so if you want to put on any lists or get any comments about those animals let us know and we hopefully will be expecting more clutches as we get further into the season as far as shows um unfortunately i will not be vending the april hamburg show but i will be attending and can deliver animals to that as well as the april havert grace and the april white plains so it's got a lot of shows coming up where i'll be wandering around Uh, that's all we have for you guys tonight. So we'll say thank you all for listening and we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night.